if I can establish a good European captive population of scrubs, then like that's my job done. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to From the Ground Up podcast. And as always, we would love it if you guys would check out PortCityPythons.com. So PortCityPythons.com, there are shirts available as well as some animals available. And uh, what else do we have on the website? We also have Cocoa Core Bricks, so you can buy a substrate. And then we also have uh, different blocks of cocoa products. If you guys are interested, just hit me up and I can kind of tell you all about a certified organic coconut chips and peat. And then there's also Amazon links below in the description of the YouTube video as well as the podcast, which all you do is click on those and then go shop as you normally would on Amazon. And then that gets kicked back and helps us out with the podcast. And is there anything else you want to get out there? Just again about Oaks. Okay, yeah, we're we are vending oaks in two weeks. So mm-hmm. is that the tenth or the ninth? Uh-huh. Tenth. So it's gonna be Saturday, November tenth, and come check us out. We're gonna have corn snakes. We're gonna have cocoa products, short for coconut, by the way, and, and maybe some springtails. Oh yeah, we were trying to get springtails and Someone different plants. We may have some, but I don't know. <laughs> We kind of, uh, I semi-failed in my attempts of all those things, so we'll probably, once we do a solo podcast, we'll talk all about, basically... Your failures? Me failing at doing all the naturalistic vivarium stuff that I wanted to get done, but I didn't really, I don't know. I'm just a, just a noob at it, really. I don't know what I'm doing. I can keep snakes and breed snakes, but that's about it. Can't keep springtails. <laughs> I can't keep springtails, yeah. <laughs> Little bastards. <laughs> but, okay, so our guest today. Long intro, huh? So our guest today is Lawrence Kensington from Lark Pythons. So Lawrence keeps uh, a bunch of Somalia, so scrub pythons, as well as he has some liasis and even some random colubrids here and there. So we'll talk all about that. So Lawrence, can you give us a quick intro of who you are, where you're from, and kind of uh, what got you started into scrub pythons? Uh, well, as a kid uh, growing up in England, I was sort of I was always interested in reptiles, and like whenever we went to a pet shop or a zoo it'd always be like the reptile section i'd go to and sort of we'd kept like my parents had always kept animals like we had like tropical fish like arowana uh then we had i think we had a soft shell turtle of some kind as well um but that was way back but my interest was always in snakes sort of growing up watching wildlife documentaries like as most of us did sort of steve Irwin, sort of austin stevens um so then sort of like we we moved over to Ireland then from the UK when I was about seven years old and like past school whatever and I was up in university in Dublin and one of my friends just was like hey listen you should go down to like this snake shop down there she was in zoology and she was sort of like you should go down there and talk to these guys I can just like have a walk around and see so went down there instantly sort of got talking to the guy and she told me that she knew of a pet shop that was closing down that had a normal ball python 
and enclosure for sale for sort of like 80, 80, 100 euro. So sort of I thought about it and we sort of like, she went out there for me because she'd kept snakes before and uh, she sort of like, she said, you'll need to upgrade the enclosure within about two months and like it's a bit like, didn't look the best cared for. Like reptiles aren't that big over here. I mean, there's quite, they're growing in popularity certainly, but it's not sort of, wouldn't be anywhere near the numbers that you see in the UK. Um, so anyway, but the initial flood, the, the initial interest was open. Like I could, I was like thinking about getting one. So in the end, I sort of like, I was, uh, I brought my dad who'd always been interested in reptiles into the shop and sort of like thought about it. And he decided as, as a present, he decided to get me like, he, he said like, yeah, like what, what sort of thing do you want to go for? And like at the time I hadn't really looked into many of the species and it was sort of just like going by what the people in the shop said and uh got a really close bond with the shop owner over a very short period of time so i got my first snake which was just a pastel ball python uh female and then shortly after that like i'd go into the shop i'd help out a bit like if if i had some spare time over the summer or when i was in college and uh fell in love with a pair of Madagascan ground boas that they had in there and it was sort of like started researching them like the owner had said they were the only pair he'd had come in and he'd always wanted to keep them uh one was meant to be promised to someone someone had said like oh I'll come in and buy the female and he didn't want to sell them separately so like he hadn't heard from the guy for a couple of months and in the end the guy was like no so uh in that time I'd bought a Jumeral's boa from him uh, as well and then bought the Madagascans and then from there sort of went got a retic from that shop as well um Whoa, number a, one a small customer. one <laughs> yeah like a it was a I think it was it was a bit they'd sold it I think and it had come back in um the guy just like didn't want to work with it or couldn't work with it so it was a fairly sort of small animal that had it was drop feeding in the shop um but like it was a good healthy specimen so decided to get that one and then shortly afterwards got my first green tree after about six months and then was watching some Austin Stevens and saw his episode on the Australian scrub pythons and something just clicked and I was just like right I want to get those so like researched into it found out you can't get the Aussie stuff unfortunately <laughs> but found a couple of guys who were working with the Papuan scrubs and then from there, it was just sort of like every chance I, I saw, I sort of like, I was like, right, yeah, I want to build up a scrub collection and started researching who had them, who was breeding them, and came across a guy in the UK who produced some barnex and went and got my first female. Um, and that was sort of a small, strong barnex female, a juvenile, I think she was about six months old at the time. And from there, I was just hooked. I loved everything about the scrubs, like they sort of, they captured my attention like no other snake I'd worked with in the shop, like be it bloods or carpets, there was just something about them. So that was sort of how I got started into it. And then my dad sort of decided like he, he wanted to keep as well. And I sort of bought him, I was working part-time job, bought him his first snake, which was uh, uh, Annery Boa that the uh, one of the guys in the shop happened to get in. And he was just sort of said, thinking of letting him go and so I sort of said yeah okay I'll, I'll take him and that was let sort him of, go to me <laughs> that was yeah that was a father's day present to uh to my dad was a was a six seven foot male boa um 
and then we sort of like we just sort of started going into it sort of like together like he'd always been interested he'd always wanted to keep them and it was just sort of like there was something we could share going into it so we sort of like built up the collection between us like it's sort of a bit of oh i need a it's like oh this really nice scrubs come up can i uh, uh i need to i need to loan i need to loan us some money like i i need to like get borrow half of the cost of it and then i'll pay you back sort of thing so it's sort of definitely definitely working together and sort of like we both work with the animals and he's confident working with the scrubs so like if i'm away working he he I'm, i know that the collection's in good hands he's still keeping up the work anyway so i'm very lucky to have that or to have that opportunity to me, because if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to to be doing what I'm doing. Now, did you know the full extent of, say, like the reputation of Scrubs or the keeping that's involved, you know, the behavior as well as, I mean, some of them seem to be very touchy as well. I'd like, I'd spoken to the guy in the shop because I like, I got to work like closely with him and he was sort of a mentor in many ways who, uh, is sort of like he shared his experience let me like work with the snakes in the shop so this um, isn't you know your normal pet shop where there's like a no, this kid. Is, uh this is well it's a it is a reptile specialist like they the guy's been keeping for sort of 20 30 years i think at this point like he started when he was 12 um and he's kept a whole load of species like he's gone from uh, like the American water snakes, he's kept sort of like berms, retics. He's never really kept scrubs, um, but he's kept sort of sanzinia. He's bred sanzinia um, and a whole load of other species. So like they do, they really really know their stuff. And he's a really nice guy. And like he'll take if you want to, he'll spend hours talking to you in the shop. Like there'll be other customers there, and he'll just like. He'll talk to you just for hours, like letting you know all of his experiences. So that's what sort of really helped me sort of like grow on quickly as a keeper, like initially. And I asked him about scrubs and he sort of said, well, they're going to challenge you. They're going to be a surprise. But he said, look, you've you've had the, um, the Madagascans, you've had that, which aren't too bad, but like you've had the retic. He said, if you think you're ready for it, then he said, he said you should you should go for it and i, I was looking for something as a bit of a challenge because the retic came in he was a little bit jumpy a little bit bitey like not sort of even food aggressive in the enclosure just wanted it just wanted to be left alone and i worked with him slowly and sort of like got him calm reasonably quickly and so i sort of wanted something that had a bit more of a challenge to it so i decided like yeah scrubs are scrubs are where i want to go and I, yeah i'd researched them i'd spoken to people who'd uh who had owned them before and they were like yeah you're gonna they're gonna be it's gonna be a steep learning curve but starting off with juvenile animals is a lot easier than sort of diving in headfirst into adults i think it was about after i think about four months after i got my first scrub i got my first sub adult which was a which was a sub and about eight foot and then a couple of months after that i had the four adult oxidals as well as uh, as mahogany, the wrong barnet. So I'd sort of one guy in England. I'd gotten to know. I bought the one animal off him. Got to know him. He sort of said, "Well, like I want these animals to go to the places where I think they're gonna stand the best chance of breeding." So he worked out like payment schemes and that, and I got four team or pythons off him as well. Whoa! So that was sort of that was sort of that was the the founding collection of the the, the most of his animals sort of like make up the founding founding animals of the 
of the collection we had now between like two or three people who had really stunning collections and I just managed to get to know them at the right time and sort of just like could cherry pick which ones I wanted and I missed a couple like back then when I was buying the Oxervilles we sort of there was a a Xanthica silver Moluccan python that the guy had as well and I got to work with this animal and it was really really stunning um and at the time I didn't know how unusual the Xanthic uh, Moluccans were and I sort of decided no I'm going to go for the Oxibills as well which were which he said were rare and he didn't really say much about the about the class Philippus but have you seen the uh the Xanthic Timor that was at Tinley this year yeah um it's uh chad's isn't it chad gray i think right yeah, yeah that's that's something that's something interesting like it's i do like the uh the normal timors i do like the the yellows and like in general i'm not sort of like a morph kind of guy but stuff like that where it's just like something's coming from from a farm or something like that it's like yeah something that should be worked on like it's it is some it is something i mean like it, it's what we're doing with is what we're doing with scrubs like we've got the azanthic nauter and the and the xanthic nauter so it's just like well we selectively breed for that so selectively breed for xanthic for xanthic timors yeah and now you mentioned that you got you know a couple captive born animals but i know that captive born and bred animals are kind of hard to come by and probably just as hard as it is over here over there but um what's kind of the difference between those captive animals like have they been easier to work with from the farm raised or the long-term captive animals? Not, I wouldn't say particularly that like the captive bred ones are easier to work with. Like some of them are worse. Like the, the Barnet, which I got originally now is the her and her sibling are just completely psychotic and they're both CB animals. Like I did tame her down when I was in college and then as I got more animals, I preferred seeing them just in the enclosures doing what they do rather than taking them out to handle them. And with scrubs, it's sort of like any any sort of extra stress that you don't really need on them, which taking them out. And also just like, I prefer to look at them in the enclosure, like they're they're there, they're nice big displays. They're like all the like UV lighting for everything. So I'm just like, I can admire the animals and I, I love handling them, but sort of unless it's a, necessity i wouldn't take any sort of like especially adult female animals i'd never just sort of like take one of them out for for no reason it wouldn't be something that i do but in general the wild caught ones i've had are some of the calmer animals of the scrubs um like the i've got two two new wild caught animals and they're sort of they're very similar to to all the rest of them like there's a lot of bluff and a fight when you go into the cage like they're less up if you don't get them quickly um but in general like when they're out they're slow moving they're inquisitive one of the captive bred nauters i have you take him out and he just thrashes continually he's just thrashing around like he's he bit me in the thigh once he's about 10 foot and Wow. Just sort of was thrashing, just was thrashing around and just bang went onto the thigh and let go immediately. So, and he that one's captive bred, but then you got other sort of eight foot, nine foot wild caught ones which are just completely docile, like they're just crawling over your hand as if there's no pro- there's nothing there to, for them to worry about. So, it is, and, and I don't particularly like using hooks to really get the scrubs. <laughs> out of the enclosure i'll use the hook to sort of guide the head away 
but once I can, I'll try and get, and I'll use gloves uh, if for some of the, especially some of the big ones, like the 15-foot Kofi Al I have, I'll use gloves because I've seen his teeth and I know that he, he had a pair of leather gauntlets and he sliced through about five mil of leather of leather on the end of the hand and got about three, four mil into my finger. So I was just like, and that was through the gloves, just straight across them, not through the stitches. So we bought a pair of Venom Defenders for him because that's, wow. it's sort of like, gotta, have, gotta be safe for me and safe for, safe for him. But like, I'll, I'll generally just like keep their heads away from me and then get a hands on them. And by that time they start to move away. And what you'll often find is they'll try to hook their head over the lip of a, over the lip of a tub or, or sorry, not a tub, over the like edge of a branch. And you just slowly like feed their body out further. And as they try to move forward, their head stays in one place and the rest of the body just comes out and you can lift, lift that and then just slowly lift the head off the branch. And it's sort of very low stress. It's not poking around with hooks, trying to like manipulate them with two hooks. It's sort of, I find it easy just to keep their head away until I can get hands on. And then once they start moving, it's fine. And so it's sort of like a, confident you you've got to be confident but aware that like the minute you like i know the minute i become too complacent with scrubs because i get bitten it's just like they have a way of saying like you you're slipping a bit here like you've got to you've got to buck up your ideas like i've had had a couple of near misses and it's just sort of like right need to rethink like what i'm doing go back a bit but yeah, it's all just sort of like working with the animal. It's not like you're not trying to do make it do anything it doesn't want to do and sort of like make sure any interactions are as positive as possible. I think that's, that, that's, sort of, that's my ethos anyway. Yeah, I think that most people would say, hey, man, just keep that thing in a tub and it will be a lot easier to work with. So I guess explain a little bit. Did we just fucking freeze again? Why? I shouldn't talk, apparently. I don't know what's happening. Oh, okay, uh, and we're back. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> um, so, fuck. And now I'm going to have to edit this a bunch. But um, So, most people would say that maybe that's... You should keep them in tubs. They're going to be much easier to work with like that and get out of the enclosure. How do you keep them? Because obviously I know that you, you don't keep them in tubs. I'm a big naturalist. Right, right. So, I want to get kind of more detail... You know, a 10-foot animal, what kind of enclosure is that in? Adults, babies, you know, what's the difference between housing them all and how are you housing them? Uh, well, sort of, for the 10, for for an example, for the for a 10-foot animal, we'd generally be aiming for a 6 by 2 by 3 foot enclosure minimum for a 10-foot animal. Um, like, they do appreciate height. They do appreciate branches. Like, we have a, we give them a mix of sort of vertical branches screwed in and then horizontal branches uh try and make it as natural as possible uh in general i mean like it's it's a bit of a contentious subject about like how much how much like you go into you interact with the animal how much you go into clean because with my ethics of just sort of like i don't like to handle them unless it's absolutely necessary with the enclosures the size they are for just doing simple spot cleaning, something where in a tub you'd have to take the animal out completely, put it somewhere else, and then go through, clean everything, and then put it back in the tub. Uh, you'd have to, like, with spot cleaning, just with, a, like, a good two-inch layer of substrate, spot cleaning is just, like, I can slide open the door, the animal's at the other end, 
go in i can just spot clean sort of at my leisure keeping an eye on keeping an eye on what the snake's doing some of them will move forward some of them will just sit and watch um and then for doing a full clean sort of every because i will take we'll scoop a big lot of substrate out after after like with any feces or whatever and then we'll add fresh substrate and then like if i'm feeding them i'll often just like just churn all the substrate over add a bit of fresh stuff so for a full clean like full deep disinfectant everything out would generally be sort of maybe four to five months for us and lots of people sort of would say well that's like the the animals are being sort of like oh there's lots there's little bits of shed or there's bits of urates but i found like from what i've seen you put any new snake into an enclosure into a new enclosure within a couple of hours or the first day they always defecate like all the time they always defecate and i don't know if it's some sort of whether it's a, a not like a coping mechanism but like something about like the the smell of the feces like set is is a signal like okay this is i'm in this area and i know that like with ari and his research with bolands is he's seen around female nests especially lots of scat lots of feces and shed so i sort of think there's something about like these biological markers which might help the sort of more nervous species see more at ease which is sort of why i don't keep in in tubs and i think that like like tubs have their place in the hobby entirely like they do have their place however for larging the housing large arboreal pythons i don't think that's i don't think it's sort of it, it doesn't it doesn't sit right with me sort of morally really like I'd, I'd prefer to see them out doing natural behaviors not just curled up on a ball in the floor like they can perch they can move like you can watch them like if they're being active you can sit there just watch them for for an hour or so easily just watching what they do how they move around the enclosure um and then for babies i've for the neonates that i've that i've managed to breed i've uh, been raising them in um they're 12 by 18 by 18 inch enclosures. They're basically small versions of the larger ones. We put small twigs, just like rams put small twigs in there, silicon some of them in place. Um, and then like we get like sprigs of the greenery, of just like the fake plants, just tie some of them together. And just like there's the little uh, small adhesive blocks you get for holding wires in place that you just put a cable tie around we just use those with some of the strands from the greenery and we just like put them up at the top they're wedged in they can't pull them off uh, they stick pretty well um, and there's no adhesive on the outside and by doing this we've got we've had basically with the jungle carpets that we've bred and the areas that we bred this year as well as the norters uh, the norter scrubs um, we've got them all strike feeding on defrost in those enclosures without having to put them in a smaller enclosure or in a tub to get them to feed. They're up high, they can they can perch, you're feeding all the time, you're feeding from underneath them, which is more natural than coming in over the top of a hatchling tub. Um, I'm not saying the other way, like the other way works and it's worked for so many people, I'm just saying this is what works for me. And I've got, and like the snakes seem to, the neonates don't seem stressed in there. They sort of act very much like the adults. They spend most of the time perching and they'll be a lot more active at night. Now, what are you using as far as a heat source? Are you using light bulbs and like, what are you using for daylight bulbs? Is there UVB or? 
now that we've changed over from using sort of the general uh, infrared basking bulbs, the red light ones, to using daylight basking bulbs, um, which have the UV, which have UVA, and then we have the fluorescent UVB tubes that are mounted with perches close enough that they should get like if there is if there is benefit to them, they should be able to get it from where they can perch with the UV tubes. And so the the daylight basking bulbs for the large tanks, like because of the weather in Ireland and that it's not it's not really easy to get it's not cheap to keep a snake collection over here unless you like specifically design a really, really well insulated room. Um so they sort of stay on for about six to eight hours in the day, the basking bulbs, and then back up is radiant heat panels just set to a thermostat for a minimum. We have the we have the heat panels right beside the beside the basking light as well. So it's like they have one hot end and they can go down as far as they want to get cool. Uh so that's how we find it works for the large cages and like some of the large in I think the eight foot the eight by two and a half by four foot which we have the breeding pair of sarongs in. I think we've got three radiant heat panels along the top as well as a basking bulb and then we've got the sort of a heat mat underneath giving heat to the hide. Wow, so there's things that pretty much all angles to ensure the snake can pretty much get wherever he wants. Lots of fail safes too, yeah. which is cool. Like if this doesn't work then there's this there and all that. And then I mean, someone's first thing is going to be like, oh, how do I keep humidity in something that large, also with the bulbs running and everything like that? So do you run into humidity problems? If so, how do you keep up the humidity? The only time we've really run into humidity problems is sort of like coming into winter where like the heating is on more and in general the house is sort of like drier and we do increase the spraying, like we we manually spray all the big scrubs. in the one room where we have most of the large scrubs, we do have a uh, have a pump system set up to spray all of them at once, um, and that usually like usually we do it maybe once a week uh, over summer, sort of just a very light mist once a week. When it comes to winter, maybe twice a week we'll be doing heavier, slightly heavier sprays, especially coming up to a shed cycle. But we found mostly with like just with thinking about how you're setting up a stack of enclosures, like you've got a heat source from underneath you, you've got a small gap between the bibs. And then what we aim to do is put the water bowl over the heat source from beneath. So that helps just evaporate that a bit fast to keep the humidity up. I like stuff like cork tubes and the and the substrate holds humidity really well. Uh, so like we do we do get into like there are sometimes you've ran into problems and we've had like a couple of animals get like a bad shed even though we've been spraying it and we're sort of like we're not entirely sure why whether it's sort of like the air is getting a bit dry or it's particularly cold and the heating's just coming on a bit more um but in general we don't really suffer with many humidity problems with how much it rains in ireland we don't really have an issue with that well i was just about to ask maybe a dumb question but what's the climate like over there (sighs) It's mainly it, it lives up to the uh, to the stereotype of raining most of the, most of the time to some point. I mean, like now we're experiencing experiencing more extremes of weather. Like most places, like this summer, we had sort of like six eight weeks of sort of like twenty seven twenty eight degree weather, 
which we'd never usually get to get it that hot for that long. There'd be a couple of weeks, but not as long as it was this time. I mean, we were, we were had all the windows open. We had all the heat sources off, like, and we were, even then the tanks in the house were getting to sort of up to 28, 29 with no heating, heating turned on. In general, I think it, and I think it helps, it, it's, it's an advantage to us, um, is we have, uh, is it's a lot of changing weather systems. So it'll be like drier and clear for a short period of time, and then it'll come in raining a lot more. Well, basically he's saying it just rains a lot, <laughs> but does, does rain have an effect on humidity? That was a dumb question. Yes, yeah, that was a very dumb question. Good thing uh, we got <laughs> online by the time you asked that. Uh, we were still hearing. <laughs> yeah, rain's water. Shut up. Okay. So, uh, but you think that would affect his humidity, but he's not having any issue. No, he's saying that it stays high enough. That the issue would be it would be too dry. Gotcha. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Do you? Uh, what ended up being the first uh, scrubs that you bred, and have you bred others since then? How many clutches of scrubs have you had? Uh, I've had two clutches of scrubs so far. So the first one was the um, the Highland scrubs or the the Tamika Oxville, whichever name you want to use. That whoever is using in the in the pet trade at the minute, um, they were the first ones I bred. And then last year or this year, sorry, I bred the uh, the dwarf the dwarf species of scrubs, the um, the Norta, the Tanimbar Islands, uh, and. It looks hopefully by the end of November we'll have a third clutch here, so that'll be sort of like three three years with three clutches, hopefully two years with three clutches, hopefully. And that's out of how many adult pairings that you've tried out. Adult pair that I've tried out, I've tried, I think, over with it being the same pairings. I think I've tried four four pairings overall, adult wise. Some of them uh, like go with the good and bad. Uh, one female got a brain tumor, and she was she had I think three and a half centimeter follicles. She was like literally on the point of ovulating. Wow. Um, another one was also building follicles, and she got osteomyelitis, which seems to be quite a common thing in scrubs. It's like it's a bone infection. Um, and it seems to affect their spines. And one way for it to get in is like if a piece of undigested bone or something nicks the intestine, the bacteria gets into the bloodstream, and it can it can affect the it can like start an infection in the spine, which is what happened to that female. So they were the first two scrub pairs that I tried, and unfortunately they both went south, sort of for for natural causes sort of like what the brain tumor one was just sort of like completely out of the blue one day she was fine two days later she fed two days later she had a lump on her head um of course bring her into the vets get ultrasound get x-rays um the vet in Ireland that we use he's he's good he is experienced with reptiles but he's also learned a lot with us and he's a lot more confident now because he, he he's used to dealing with sort of like uh, ball pythons and or just and not stuff. a scrub yeah that's a very rare <laughs> yeah. animal to get in it's sort of like it's sort of like a, a small vet clinic in in the west and suddenly you got this guy bringing in this like 13 foot scrub python to get a swab taken <laughs> he's definitely like grown with us he hasn't sort of there's nothing we've sort of like gone in and said like no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go i'm not gonna have a look at this like he's always 
as long as basically I'm in control of the head, he's fine doing whatever. And like, he's, he's, he's definitely been a big help and sort of like, he'll go and he'll look up stuff. He'll forward things to other vets. One of the vets we work with, who's a close personal friend in the UK, uh, probably one of the best exotic vets in the UK. Um, and for the sort of extreme cases, like where we thought the brain tumor was actually an abscess that we were going to have to get operated to get removed. So we took the snake to the UK from Ireland, boarded her while they started to treat her and do tests. And then unfortunately she started going downhill and then like she passed away, got all the tests on, came back as a brain tumor, which was like something just completely unexpected. Uh, but it seems to be something that's more common. I mean, I've had, I think, three cases now of cancer, like a brain tumor, a heart tumor, and leukemia in scrubs. Um, and I know other people have had, like, there's one guy, he lost a small group of, I think it was four, cluster lepus that also all had tumors. Wow. So I know that it seems to be quite a big... Uh, quite a big cause of quite a high cause of mortality and i think we're only just starting to see that now as people are sort of going right well we need to get a test done find out why that animal died those are things that seemingly i don't know i mean why do you think there is there any reason to why they're seemingly predisposed to get cancer or tumors or i can't I, I wouldn't know. I mean, like, if we know that, like, green tree pythons there also seem to be quite prone to getting cancer, but I think possibly, like, before when animals, like, just die and, like, you don't go and you don't get them tested for, like, an animal that, like, suddenly, like, the one that had leukemia outwardly appeared fine, was basking, moving, eating as normal, everything was perfect. One day I left, I left to go to Dublin at six o'clock get a phone call from my dad go at nine thirty. go and just walked in he's like limp on floor completely and it was just like four hours had gone from perching to being dead just like complete complete change and everything else he wasn't emaciated and it was just leukemia had gradually just worked through all of the major organs until it just caused a final like major shutdown so like some animals that just seem to like roll for no reason and people say oh it just died it's like well we need to you need to go and like get a histopathology and a post-mortem done find out why that animal died just don't don't just say it was nature it's like find out find out what went wrong so like for us like working with that many animals if one goes down you need to know why because you're just like if this is something that like I've managed to bring into the collection, like we go through six months quarantine here for the animals, but even so you're just like, you want to make sure that like everything else is fine with the animals. So like, I know that fat reserves and everything, like the animals aren't overweight, they aren't emaciated. Everything else seemed was fine with him. All the other organs were still perfectly fine, apart from just the fact that he had leukemia. So I know that at least that part of my keeping is is the the other side of my keeping is like yeah they're not they're in good health there's no this was the one reason why it died not for something that I caused so it is important to find out what happens to these animals just even if like they don't exhibit any outward signs of being ill when they die it's just even just go and check it don't just say ah uh, it just happened. 
So I think I have to ask the question that everyone's thinking. So you wear gloves, you don't handle the animal, you kind of always watch out for the sharp end of it, and they randomly drop dead and get all these tumors and cancers and, and all these types of things. Why, how do you How do you still work with scrubs? Why? How do you keep and that like, love after all yeah. this? It's It's been tough, and like after after you like you get a big loss like that especially if it's sort of like a big breeder female or a female that was going to breed and you're sort of like these were they were the first two times i tried to breed scrubs and these two things happened and at that point you sort of you do hit a low and you're just like i can't be bothered doing this anymore and like yeah i've been to the point i've like after i lost one of them i'd like written out a whole post just like everything is for sale listed everything ready to go and i didn't post it i was just like gonna hold off on it and just like took some time away from facebook and away from the the social media side of the hobby i just got back to the roots of working with the animals and just like as i got working with them more i realized like no i still have this i still have this passion i want like scrubs are just the one thing that i found that i'm just like no no matter what setbacks i i encounter like i've had I've had a rough start of it with some of the with some of the cases like the cancers and that. So I'm just like, at least I haven't gone a couple of years with nothing, nothing bad happening, and then thinking, right, I'm breeding, I'm good, like I'm on top of this, and then suddenly something like that happening and kicking it back. It's like, right, I've experienced the shit side of the hobby, and I know that it's it's that side, and I know that this is part of like as my dad said, you keep livestock, you get dead stock. It's just how it works. So it was just like it it was tough to tough to sort of sort of think of a reason like why am I gonna carry on with these? Like I mean, the whole thing of working with them, like I love the fact that they have a bit of fight to them. I love the fact that they're a bit of a challenge. But as far as going down like, okay, you've had losses, like you've had the cancers or whatever. It's just a case of like I know that this is what I really want to do. I want to really sort of like make a good impact on these animals uh, in captivity. Um, and make sure that they are that there's a sustainable captive population in Europe. So like we're not relying as heavily on wildcaught animals. Now, for me, wildcaught animals do uh, are an important piece of the hobby. And I think that people who say why buy wildcaught instead of buying captive bred, I'm like, well, you've got to get new bloodlines in somewhere. Like you've got to get fresh lines into the animals that you're breeding. And sometimes you just don't have a choice like some scrub localities haven't been bred that often like maybe six times in in captivity they've been bred like over 20 30 years this one locality so yeah you need to get wild caught animals it's the only way you're going to manage to manage to sort of like create a population in captivity and the fact that these animals aren't coming up that often as wild caught shows that they're not being collect overly collect they're not over collected like there's not at low tons of sort of oxable animals coming out there's two or three occasionally Do mostly what we're seeing is is in demand Sorry? or is it from demand or just there's no collectors out there i i think some of it is just from is like what is selling so sarongs and the northern barnets there very in your face they're very like the pattern is very bold so they're quite popular the other localities like the oxvilles and so some of the more obscure islands like the arrow islands aren't visually as 
in your face, but I think I like they're still magnificent animals. Like I mean, Highlands are probably my favorite. Just something about the sort of the orange banding, and I think it's more a case of just like I know that I think it's the green tree collectors don't, don't go to Kofi Owl anymore. I think it is because they can't find enough animals to make it worthwhile. Um, and I'm not sure if that's it in for the scrubs that's sort of on mainland Papawa or whether it's just getting to the regions where they actually are is the main difficulty. Now, I guess I have to ask, do you have <laughs> Halmaheras? Do you play if you do not, do you plan to can you find them? I was I had basically I'd agreed to buy a pair of Halmas Halmaheras about what well, I think this was two years ago, two and a half years ago, agreed to buy a pair three days before I was due to go to the UK to collect them. They'd been six months in captivity. Three days before I was due to collect them, the female dropped dead. Wow, From dude, that, you got some bad so, luck. <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't paid any money at that time. It was just like it was a verbal agreement. I was going to pay cash on collection. And from that point, I was sort of, I was put off. There were a couple of wild court traciers came up from the importer. They were all adults. And I said, well, I'll wait till they're, till they're young animals. If I'm going to get them, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to get young specimens if I can. Hopefully in the future, it is something I would like to work on. But I mean, there's a couple of guys out there, I think, who are really close to cracking them. Um, and I think, like, within the next two years, we're probably going to see some captive bred success with the Halma hares, I think. Now, are you one of the people who thinks that, I mean, stress is a large component, not, I mean, of every scrub, but, I mean, especially Halma hares? Yeah, I think, I think the main thing with these animals is minimal contact, like, especially females. Females, for whatever reason, seem to be a lot more highly prone to stress than the males. Like females take a while to sort of get settled into sort of like where they're ready for breeding, whereas males will try and will try and lock like the first year they're they're there. Like I mean we had the Nauta pair which I bred this year. We've had locks for I think two years before that with nothing else coming of it. Um but then I decided I completely redid the female's enclosure like she was a very shy animal only ever drop fed um struck fed occasionally and i just completely redid the whole enclosure added like three or four more vertical and horizontal branches loads more greenery so she just had a, an abundance of cover soon after that it was like a new animal had been like put in there she was stripe feeding um she was coming out cruising whereas before she'd sort of like dart back away if you walk by like this time she was coming out to the front of the cage which was something she'd never done before so i think sort of like meeting the animal's needs is a main part of them and just giving them the opportunity to do what they would do in the wild like you give the animals the space the opportunity the right conditions like they will breed i don't think there's a magic button that you have to press for them i mean like the sarongs just we were cohabiting them which is another big contentious issue now is cohabiting is like the end all of keeping it's the biggest it's the biggest keeping sin you can do um despite a lot of very experienced like zookeepers and that swearing by cohabitation as a way to breed these sort of less commonly bred species um the sarongs started going i hadn't altered the feeding, hadn't cooled them down, hadn't done anything. They started locking after we went from the really hot, dry summer into the 
cooler, rainier period, they literally started locking the day that that change happened. So for me, I just think it's like possibly not having the males in long enough leads to people like missing that window. Like I'm sort of now like second guessing myself going, well, when I saw them locked, should I, should I have done all my other pairings? Like, should I have put them all in then? Or should I wait until sort of the normal season? That, right. Yeah, the, the normal time to do it. Because, like, no one would be at, like, November time, I'm thinking, like, just putting my animals together. But instead, I'm expecting a clutch to be laid. So it's sort of, it is, it's a weird one to say, like, how seasonal are the areas where these animals come from like there's really two main seasons it's sort of like yeah depending on where they are like northern animals seem to have less of a like i've I've been talking to brandon wheeler about this and he's like looked at the sort of climate data and he said like look at morocco they have a bigger temperature drop in winter than the sarongs do sarongs are sort of pretty even throughout the whole time period like the temperatures are pretty even so like maybe they don't really have as much as a season or don't need cooling down as much as the as the moral case do. So how much when you have animals like this, like how much of it is taking information from other people and like say this is when breeding season is, this is what you do, and how much is like observing observing the individual animal? Like I went through a period like when I first like started keeping and I went and I was talking to as many people as I could about them, like whoever had kept them, whoever had bred them. Um, like when I first picked up my first scrub from the guy in the UK who'd bred them, I was talking to him like an hour, hour, two hours at his house about like what he did to breed them. So even from when I got the first animal, I knew breeding was what I wanted to do and was getting information from him on what he did. Um, Carl Green spoke a lot to David Means and a couple of the other guys and everybody has their own differing differing opinions of like what you should do and what you shouldn't do and like this has worked for him and like okay I've followed the cooling thing and it's worked for some of the animals that hasn't worked for others um, some of the animals have just done it on their own accord um, so I think a lot of it is paying attention to what that what that female is is telling you like if you notice she's starting to stay down the cooler end of the enclosure around the time that you think like should i be doing introductions she stays down the cool end likely she's building follicles so that's the time to put the male and like put the male and then and i think also from what i found is pulling introducing a male and then pulling him after a couple of days of no activity and then doing this cycle continually for me i found that it just stressed both animals out the female was more stressed male was more stressed so we came up like it's not an original idea like zoos have been doing it for years of just like an adjoint two adjoining enclosures with a door to pull out uh and that seemed to work i just like i pulled the door out if the male is interested the male goes in there within an hour like it was for the oxabills like the door was pulled within 10 minutes the male was into the female within an hour they were locking so it's sort of like if you can get that signal just on time you don't need to do this pulling a male out and even after they've locked pulling a male to give him a rest from what i've seen with the scrubs the male will generally lock about once every week to two weeks and he won't try in between those it's just like you can almost set your set your calendar by it it's like that weekend 10 days later 
10 days after that it was very it's very sort of very even there's not like a period of intense breeding activity where he's trying to do it every day and then nothing it just seems to be sort of a, a sustained thing and I don't feel that you need to pull like if the male isn't trying to continually lock with the female and the female isn't trying to get away I don't feel there's any need to pull a male out and I know a lot of people who've bred a lot more species than I have would say oh it helps stimulate the male and from my experience I haven't seen that to be the case they do sort of like they have their own program to it it's they they'll lock they'll break there's no need to pull the male out like the like for me it's just adding more stress which you don't need at that particular time so how long are you leaving that door open in between the two enclosures sometimes for the oxibles i think i when i bred them i opened the door in november i think it was and i left them and sort of like we'd seen lots and I basically left them together for about four months because they were continually locking over this time period like it was a continual like every 10 to every 10 days to two weeks and then all of a sudden like saw she was looking really swollen and then was separating them out when I was put getting them back on to feed so separated them out fed the male Fed the feet and the female ate as well. Um, she ate right up until six weeks before she laid. Um, and I stopped feeding her at that point because I was just like, I don't want to cause any issues. So it was like, she was on small, really small rats for a snake of her size, sort of like a 10 foot snake on small rats or large wiener rats, just, just keeping them ticking over. Um, and after I fed them and the male ate continually through like the breeding cycle, like as soon as I warmed it back up and they were still locking, he ate as well and she was eating and they were still copulating. There was no, no difference there. Um, and then after I fed them one time after she ovulated, took out the door, the male didn't go in at all. So I was just like, right, well, that's, he, he's lost interest as it, like, every, every time before he'd been in there within sort of an hour, I'd, like, just gone straight down from his perch and into the female's enclosure. I wonder that's why right. it takes him so many times to get the job <laughs> some done. Of them, <laughs> well, well some, of, some of them are, but then I think we saw three locks with the sarongs, and that seems to have, that seems to have been fine, and I think with the jungles we bred last year, we didn't even see a lock and we got eggs, like they were just, they were cohabiting in a six by two by three and hadn't done anything to them. And we'd been cohabiting them for about three years, hadn't tried to breed them, wasn't really high up on the list of species to breed. Uh, and then suddenly I just saw her one day sitting on the ground. I was sort of like, all right, that looks a bit odd. Went back there the next, and like went back there the sort of the same night. She was still there and I thought, I wonder if something was going on there. So I just like got the flashlight, just like lifted up the coils and I was like, oh, right. Okay. She's like, I hadn't, didn't see an ovulation, didn't see a lock. That was just pure luck. The snakes were in together, like didn't see anything happen, but ended up with a, with a nice little clutch of uh, jungle carpets. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I had said before that we weren't going to talk scrubs that much, but we ended up talking like an hour, hour. About but I mean, like, obviously you like to talk about them, so we let, and we're yeah. curious about them, even though I just listened, so if no one's heard it, um, Lawrence was on NPR, 
And so all you guys go over to NPR because they need a from the ground up bump because Eric's really jealous that this is Matt Minatola's favorite podcast. <laughs> so if you guys could go over and make Eric happy and uh, listen to Lawrence's episode on NPR because he talks like in debt. He talks this whole two hours on Scrubs, even though we just talked an hour. I try not to hit the same exact things. We hit some of them, but I really want to talk about Timor's. And so are you doing similar things with your Timor Pythons as you're doing your scrubs? Yeah, we've had them for about, they've been with us for about three and a half years now. And they were, they're approximately eight years old. They were brought in as wild courts in 2010, um, raised up slowly. Uh, we bought them from the same guy as a lot of the scrubs. Uh, well, the adult pair and then a smaller uh, captive bred pair from Europe as well. Um, and we were keeping them in four by two by twos. We'd sort of been told like they're quite shy; they'll only drop feed in small enclosures. So we sort of stuck with that for two years, three years, um, and then sort of like I'd always like I'd read the Barkers um, piece on Timors and saying like they often needed a larger enclosure. So I thought, right, well I'm I tried breeding them in the four by two by twos when they were seven, um, and then decided for this year going to completely upgrade it put them into each of them has basically a four by two by three foot bib each and then the doors are removed all the time now apart from when they're fed when we just wait for them to go into the into the two enclosures and then just put the door in haven't seen anything with them but the uh the male is definitely sort of like he is sticking close to the female like they're always curled up on the same shelf together now which is what i saw with the water pythons Last year, like the male stuck to her, no locks were seen, like the tails were close, but never actually locking. And then with the water pythons, it was like pure luck. I'd left them in for two weeks longer than I'd sort of been told to. They were like, if they haven't done anything by December, by end of December, take them out. And I was just busy with college stuff and I left them in for another two weeks. And during those two weeks, we had a power cut and a really heavy storm around mid-January. And we sort of had a power cut for two days and the uh we've backup generators which we um which are wired into the mains for the house so it's the, we just like have two eight kilowatt generators running and they'll run uh backup heaters they'll run uh, like just room heaters if we need to and they will run sort of like the baskin bulbs and fluorescence as well um usually we just sort of like leave it to baskin bulbs during the day and just knock the fluorescence off to make sure we're not pulling too much out of the generators um, but with them, just like power cut, room dropped down to about 17 degrees, big storm came in after a long clear time and it was like someone had flicked a switch. It was just like all of a sudden came down that morning, they were properly locking for the first time up after sticking together and then they continued to lock for another couple of weeks until she ovulated. So that was like pure luck. I had them in, I left them in too long, there was a power cut. And whatever it was, the change in pressure, the temp dropped down another couple of degrees from what I'd kept them at. Just whatever it was signaled the male off and he started to to copulate with the female. So that was just pure chance and that was just a, a happy coincidence. So, I mean, it seems like there are certain things that interrupt and like obviously reset the whole clock and put the cycle into, I don't know what you'd call it, but um, like, would you... You'd be scared to do that yourself. Right, I was like, just asking that. Do you, if it worked out, 
even though it was a coincidence, do you? You don't want to repeat it, do you? Or is that something to think about? I mean, it's something. It's something I sort of I think about carefully, and I know that like that temperature was only experienced sort of like in the room. Like the animals still had a backup heat source. Like the they still had a backup heat source, but obviously, just it was it was very cold there, and sort of like actually, I think that was because they were in a stack. We had the uh, had the red bulbs on. Um, or we just had like basking bulbs on, but because they were in a stack, we sort of put bottom one and then the top one on and just monitor the second one's temperature with how much heat is coming up from below. And we just closely monitor that. And if it's getting too cold, we just like flip, flip them over if the generators are running a bit on the edge um, of their power output. But I'd considered doing it possibly just for like one night not an extended period of time like i mean i've been told well i was told for like scrubs like drop them down to sort of 18 degrees for like a week or two at night and keep them up general basking and i don't think that's the way to go but with the water pythons being further in australia there is more seasonality so i would think that like everybody i spoke to said well it mimics the time that they'd be breeding sort of like rainy season lots of heavy rain colder so it is something i consider trying again yeah just like for one night just let the temps drop down just unplug the heating from from that enclosure completely and just let temps go down to 17 and then just see if that spurred them off again yeah and i think it's weird because a lot of our reptiles that we keep do experience you know rainy seasons and drier seasons or you know it's basically all pretty humid all all the way around but i mean i don't feel like there's anyone trying to mimic a rainy season do you think there's any merit to it would you try it? i mean it seems like you you get a boost off of your own climates i mean the pressure and everything like that's what really is the uh, factor yeah i mean in general like for us i mean in general when it comes to the breeding season because it's winter and as i said like with humidity problems we do spray a little bit more in general so perhaps in some way that's almost mimicking uh, a rainy a rainy season for some of the animals um but as far as like setting up timers and having everything automatically done i I'm not sure. I think the pressure aspect is more important than actually a physical rain aspect to it. I mean, maybe for, <clears throat> sorry, maybe for species like Bolands, I think maybe that because of where they are in the highlands and like there's lots of cloud systems there. I think maybe for the, something like the Bolands that added, that added trigger might help more sort of like have a, have a system or a cage where you can have a really heavy downpour um and just like and it can drain away or it doesn't like hold the humidity sort of like do a real big cage with sort of one end that has this sort of like misting system and another end that's a lot drier which doesn't so maybe for Boland something like that could trigger it but for the other pythons I'm not I haven't seen any put up like I haven't seen any correlation between me misting an enclosure and getting increased breeding activity they seem to just rely more on the atmospheric pressure it seems to me anyway yeah now i mean someone who's so deep in those things like scrubs and timors i mean you mentioned bolens i mean logically you would think that's <laughs> something that you would like to have is that is that something in your future um it's it's been something i've sort of i've been thinking about and sort of like i saw bolens and 
like you fall for like some people like they're they're the Rolls Royce of Pythons and like they're they're the pinnacle of Python keeping and I'm like for me Owen Pelly's are the pinnacle of Python keeping like I know I'm never gonna get to keep Soon, a pair over maybe. here but <laughs> I wish but like I know I'm never gonna get to keep a pair over here but unless I unless I manage to set up a zoo if I win the lottery and and go through and get all the zoo licenses but they would they Owen Pelly's for me would be the pinnacle if I was ever to move down to Australia I'd do whatever I would have to to get a permit to keep Owen Pelly's like it'd just be one of those things like if I'm down there I'm gonna I'm gonna try them um for Bolands I've been I've I've been tempted with a couple of them that have come up and I just sort of apart from the the price just like the price would either be just when I bought someone's like I just bought six scrubs or something and I'd just be like well I've got, I, like I'm focused on the scrubs. I want to work on them, so there's no point in with like with Bolands with such with the snake that's so different for their captive husbandry. It seems I don't think there's I wouldn't have I wouldn't feel right because I wouldn't be able to give them the time to really like get to learn that species as well as scrubs at the same time in future. Yeah, definitely something that I'd want to work with, but not so much as because there's a hype about them and there's the mystique and that more just the fact that they present a challenge. I like a challenge. And so like they present a big challenge for the community, sort of like, like how the herons do of not much captive breeding, like it for the Halma hare is no captive breeding. They represent a challenge, which I sort of like, just like to sort of like try my own ideas with. And I'm not saying like, Oh, I'd, I'd magically beat breed Bolands the first time but I've got ideas that sort of I know what I would do if I was working with them so it is something I'd like to look at getting in the future but for now scrub pythons are just the one thing I'm focused on and as, as you can tell I just they're, they're, they're the one species for me which just everything is it's it's all about them it's sort of like they're the one species I want to find out more want to like breed sort of as much as I can they're just sort of they are the one species that just holds holds everything for me. They're lean, they're fast, they're a challenge. Um, what most people would consider or wouldn't consider a fun snake to own. <laughs> yeah, if you don't like dodging <laughs> open snake mouth. When you just say lean fast, that doesn't sound too bad. But <laughs> you cut out all of this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's a it's a very surprisingly agile snake for being so large. I think that's what's interesting about it. Yeah, like the um, I had the fifteen foot the fifteen foot Kofi I was in like when we brought them back from the UK. We housed them temporarily just in tubs, uh, transport tubs, like at my flat in Dublin when I was living there. And I had to do we had to have them there for about a week until we could get uh, transport back home for them and like we had that we had them in there and i was spot cleaning the big one one day like i was getting food into them and was spot cleaning him and for a 15 foot snake he can move fast he was out of the tub and around the nearest armchair in about three seconds and i'm thinking this is a 15 foot animal that weighs 15 kilos ish and just like completely just out the gate coiled and that was like right my like okay i've definitely got to like a nice large enclosure for him was a must just because he does tend to flee more so it's sort of like he can move surprisingly quickly and as far as strike range is concerned like i've seen 
I've had an eight foot, nine foot female Barnick launch horizontally across a four foot Viv and reach a foot outside it. Wow. So they they can strike when they want to, they can strike easily sort of like a half their body length if they really want to. So they are something you have to be aware of when you're when you're working with them. Yeah, that's awesome and frightening at all at the same time. Yeah. So you kind of you touched on a little bit, but as far as in Europe getting import animals for us, it's kind of different. You know, someone in Florida gets it and then they ship it to you. Uh, it seems like a lot more difficult to buy from an importer there. So how do you go about getting those like imported scrubs and stuff like that? Most of the imported scrubs I get come from uh, come from Germany. There's like a couple of importers in in Europe that I would use, um, and generally I'd email them, sort of keep in contact, see what they have when. Um, and in general, we just like they be going to like Ham or Houghton, one of the big snake shows over in Europe, and we know a couple of people who go and who run a good courier service, so we get them couriered back to Dublin docks in Ireland from the shows and then we just drive back across Ireland with the snakes and we just have like um car batteries with a inverter which we can just like we can put a thermostat probe into one of the tubs and then we just have uh heat mats set underneath them for as many as we need and so that's how we transport them back so it is and like if you're driving to the UK to sort of like for some of the for the Timors and for the Oxabills we drove to the UK and you're sort of thinking like 1600 kilometer round trip in about three days to like pick up some of these snakes it's like it's what is that in miles (laughs) i don't know what it is in miles but very long okay like 2000 oh whoa (laughs) it's yeah how many hours did it take you i guess that would be that's something we all everyone (laughs) across the world uses hours thank you (laughs) It's uh well I suppose it takes sort of three and a half four hours for us to drive from where we live to Dublin to the port, and then another couple four four hours or so on the ferry over to the UK, and then from where this guy was from where we got the ferry to, I think he was something like a six hour drive. Wow. Down, so it's sort of like we go over, we leave like say we left on a Monday, we'd be over in the UK sort of like. Uh, Tuesday morning, getting off the ferry down to his by sort of midday, leaving his around four o'clock, driving back to the docks, getting to the docks at 10, back onto the ferry at midnight, back over in Ireland at about four o'clock in the morning, and then into the, and then just back and like either drive straight back over home or when I was living in Dublin to the flat, get all the snakes on heat mats, and then just crash out for a for a couple of hours and then drive back. So it is a it's it's a lot of work when you want for some animals, but like for those animals, I haven't ever handled a, a an adult scrub before. So I went down to him and I said, "Look, this one like he warned me this one is like top five percent of the nastiest scrubs he's had." I like that was going to be my first sub adult, like my first venture into anything over any scrub over like two foot. It's sort of like my first venture into an eight-foot snake. And um, went down and I went in with the attitude of, like, if I think this animal is too much for me and I'm not going to be able to work with her safely and keep her well, then 
I'm not going to take her. You can keep the deposit. We've driven this way, but you can keep her. Like I went in with the attitude of if if I don't think I can do this, then I will let you know I'm not going to take her. And then two weeks later, go back saying, oh, she's just lacerated my arm. Like, you should have told me you should have done this. Or like, well, you're getting into scrubs. You know what you're, what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it can be. But for that, he was like the guy who bought them off, Jim Weatherall. He was a... Uh, ran he ran or he runs i think he's still keeping uh Ouroboros herpetological on facebook like some stunning he had some proper proper stunning animals and uh he basically like spent a day with me working up from his most docile scrubs to his most aggressive scrubs showing me how to hook and tail them how to handle them safely so i owe a lot to him for like spending that time to to sort of like teach me how to work with the animals safely. And then from then it was just learning what I can, how I should work with each individual animal because each one's different. Some don't respond well to hooks. Some you can, some I can reach in with a bare hand and just lift out without getting bitten. Like I know the animals enough to say like, well, I can read the animal if it's going to come towards me. Okay. Yeah. That's likely to get a bite, but if I can touch it and it sort of just doesn't really shift or move i can usually just just like gently scoop it up slowly and then just get it up and then it's fine yeah now for all the (laughs) americans listening and my terrible guess before it's 990 miles so it's not even (laughs) close to what i said so i want to clear that up it's because the chat converted for us but what were you gonna say Uh, okay so i don't know if you said this or i'm just gonna make an assumption is it is the reason you didn't get this animal shipped to you because you wanted to handle it like you drove all that just because or was it necessity? Or was yeah, did you yeah. part of it was because the guy had said to me, he said, like, if you're gonna get this animal, if I'm gonna sell it to you, I really want you to come over and collect it and like just so because he didn't want someone coming back to him going, This animal's done this, this animal's done that. Like he said, like I just want to make sure that she's gonna go to a place that is gonna be good for her and like you can handle her and that so there was part of that and also from you can't really get a courier from just from the uk to ireland unless it's coinciding with one of the shows which it wasn't it was just sort of like in between the shows and the guy needed to sort of like get the animals out reasonably quickly but he didn't mind holding on a couple of weeks or like a couple of months while we sorted out the ferries but it was really just like unless it's going to a show you can't get a courier back to the uk just like you can't post snakes like no i think if you went like the courier companies over here have problems shipping us like or like don't like shipping us frozen prey because they can't guarantee it will be frozen when it arrives this is the beauty this is a be- this is a beauty of living in Ireland. Wait, sort of it's like... 2018 <laughs> people ship frozen things all the time like what it's com- it's completely different it's just like if they're shipping from northern ireland to southern ireland one courier company will do it overnight um and but it's just like all the food is in a poly box it, with a load of like cold packs stuffed around it and just relying on the fact that it's going to stay cold enough in the poly box. It's just an ordinary van driving down. There's no demand for big frozen, for like frozen courier vans or like frozen, uh, like freezer trucks going up and down just for like stuff like this. So it is difficult and it's a challenge to sort of do it. And you've sort of uh, thought about breeding our own. And now do you, 
Ex- does it extend uh, the laws to not feed live? I know that that's a thing in England, which I'm guessing extends to the whole UK. But uh, can um, you feed live where you are, or what's the deal with that? I think I think you can you can feed live if it's a case of like life and death for the snake itself. Um, I'm not really like I've never had to do it myself, and in general, it's just sort of like it's not as far as I know it is illegal like it is in the UK. It is illegal over here unless it's sort of life and death for the other animal. But it's just something something I try to avoid anyway. Yeah. Now unless I unless I absolutely had to for for one of the young snakes, but so far I've been lucky I haven't needed one that needed anything live. It doesn't sound I mean, for a place here it's a common story to where you like as a kid you used to find garter snakes in your yard and that's why you're into snakes. Now you live in Ireland where there's zero snakes. Now, do you think yeah. that that impacts the fact that there doesn't <laughs> seem to be much of a reptile scene there? Or, like, how is the reptile scene there in general? The reptile scene here is, like, it's it seemed to be, like, when I started, like, four or five years ago, there seemed to be sort of, like, there's a definitely a small core of people keeping some really high-end stuff, like, quite a lot of people who, like, don't use Facebook. And they're keeping a lot of really nice stuff. And in general, like, we've had, like, two reptile expositions in Ireland now like we've had two reptile shows in Ireland itself which sort of like have only happened in the past two years and they've grown they went from sort of being in a small sports hall to sort of being in one of the like nationals one of the national centers so it has it has really exploded and there's definitely a growing number of people keeping reptiles in Ireland however keeping the more the more like not commonly kept species there's sort of a small a small handful of people sort of going that way and there's a small number i think there's about nine nine or ten like venomous keepers private venomous keepers in the south of ireland but over here like we don't have any licenses like you don't need any license for venomous you don't need any license for crocs like as long as you can get it legally you can keep it is it just like kind of like there's not a significant number of people working with it, so it's it like law, they haven't like they realized yet. that they should make laws about it yet? Yeah, yeah, like nothing, nothing has happened for them to go. Oh, okay, we need to put a law in, or oh, we need to start like they've they've raised taxes on everything else. They haven't realized that if they if they could, they could tax about ten ten or twelve more people for keeping venomous if they decided to introduce a license. License, but, yeah. In general, they just—it's not sort of not really anything that anybody worries about. There hasn't been an incident over here of someone being bitten or anything like that. So that's sort of helped keep the community in in the good books. And there's only been sort of one or two situations of like a snake found that's got out or that someone has dumped. So it doesn't really make mainstream media over here. And you know that that animal's not going to survive, also. Yeah, like like if someone's dumping the animal there, like they they know that they're not going to survive. Yeah. Now, I mean, we talked about it earlier before the podcast, but there was obviously Casper put on the Scandinavian uh, Herpetological Symposium. So mm. I heard that you had gone over there, which I believe is Denmark, correct? Yeah, Denmark. Yeah. And uh, kind of what happened there? Kind of who'd you get to meet and what'd you talk about? Um, well, like, I got to meet Mark O'Shea, which was sort of like a big, it was a big thing for me, like I'd always watch O'Shea's big adventures and that, I got to meet him and have a small 
talk about like scrub pythons and sort of like sort of like some of my ideas of like where is there anything is there any sort of like speciation level difference and sort of like talk to him and hear his side of that um and then i got to talk to like i met uh daniel bennett who's done a lot of work on like the bosk monitors and then the um it's one of the other varana species i think it's the philippines water monitor philippines water monitor i think one of the varanid species and then sort of like got to meet um ari and sort of like spent a lot of time talking to ari and frederick sort of about bolands and especially ari about his travels over to papua and of course like i was just trying to sort of pick his brains on like have you ever come across a scrub in the wild and like when are you guys gonna like move out, move off Bolands and go and do a scrub book? Like we, we need we need to, we need someone we need someone out there who's actually going out to this place to like produce a proper scrub book, not like just relying on locality data all the time and what so and so says the animal is and this is what this animal looks like. It's just like no, we need someone who's gone over there, done the groundwork over there. So so yeah, I mean it was very well organized and it was it was sort of it was very professional but quite informal you had time to go up and meet the speakers between um when they were talking like you got to go up meet them you had 10 or 15 minutes good conversation with them so like it was very well organized and i think for i think for next year like casper's got another one planned for next year i think that he hopes to be hopes to be bigger and i think if anybody if you can come over to to denmark to go and see it like definitely worth a trip it was it was a very very good event and everybody sort of there was very friendly there's like no matter who you were talking to sort of like um henrik uh henrik herald who runs uh randa zoo in denmark randa's tropical rainforest i got to talk to him about the work that they're doing in ecuador as well like they've just bought a big they've just bought a reserve an area of land where they're doing like wildlife studies over there of what actual species are in this area of the rainforest near one of the national parks. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a great opportunity, especially for someone like you. I mean, the uh, the amount of knowledge that some people like that have, especially someone like Marco Shea, who, I mean, he may be one of the only guys you've had contact with who's seen him in the wild, right? I mean, did you get to talk to him about that? Yeah, like I, unfortunately, not not as in depth as I would have liked to. I mean, there, there's so many things, and like everybody's there, and like because Mark, because of what he's done, like he is celebrity status, like he's superstar, <laughs> he's superstar status in like the hurt world. Um, not as much as I would like to have gone into depth with him. So I hope that I can sort of like find another time to sort of pick his brains further about it. Um, but yeah, like really, really what I was overwhelmed with was someone so new to keeping. I've been keeping four years was just how sort of like friendly and open all these guys were. Like these guys have been keeping 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years. And they're just like, they're more than welcoming to someone who's been keeping four years. But like you want to learn, you're asking like good questions and stuff like, and they were just overwhelmingly welcoming and friendly to someone so new to the scene. Yeah, now, I mean, you have been keeping for like, a weirdly short amount of time for the amount of success that you've had. That is insane. I had no idea it's only been four years, but I like the story you were saying, I was like, you know, solid 10 years. Like, <laughs> no, no, no one there. But I feel like you've already like had so many there, like, well, trials and experiments. Scrub and, like, years all is that. like 
was like three years <laughs> for a year. I think that Scrub if you kept ball pythons for 20 years, I don't think you have the experience of somebody who's kept scrubs for five. But, you know, but I mean, is there kind of, have you seen backlash from the fact that you've been so successful in just a few years? Or like, is it tough? Because I know it's hard in the herb community at all to be a beginner. Are you asking, are people jealous? That's what it sounds like. <laughs> no, not, not really. But <laughs> that he did so well so quickly. But I mean, it's hard being a new keeper and then coming into a group of like veteran keepers. You know, you need to kind of scoot your way in there. In in general, like I've received nothing but support um and like while there have been while there have been sort of like misinterpretations and like misunderstandings on both sides in certain cases like as far as i'm concerned it's just like let sleeping dogs lie what's done is done like okay whatever your problems like whatever your problems you have with me like whether it be like that i've had success or whatever like most of the time I think I've been lucky breeding these. I've just happened to like hit the point where like whatever I've done has worked. Do I know like if like I've got a couple more scrub pairings planned and I'm just like I'm treating them like they're my first one ever. I'm just like I don't know if this is gonna work. Everything's still tested. I'm not gonna say right, I've got three more pairs, I'm gonna get three more clutches. It's sort of very much if I get a clutch. I've done something right, but I'm still trying to work out what that thing is because like from what I've seen, there's not there's not just one way of breeding a scrub where you have to do strict temp drop temp drops and halting of feeding and strict and like very strict introductions of when the male goes in or whatever. Like it's just for me, it's just like as I said, let the animals do what they want to do. Yeah, I think it's it's such a different mentality because we're used to, especially because mostly what we breed is corn snakes. And it's like you breed a corn snake just a few times, then you know how to breed corn snakes, and then you're real chill and relaxed about the whole process. But, I mean, it seems like you keep focus throughout the whole time because, like, it's never it's a given different. that you're going to get right. a clutch. Mm, no, like, I mean, with scrubs, like, especially with the experiences I've had already, I'm just like nothing is ever for certain with these animals like even now like I've seen whatever two or three python ovulations where I've like gone back through the dates after they've laid and said right that is what I think is the ovulation but even now like having seen what I think was the ovulation with mahogany I'm still like I'm not 100% sure like I still even have doubts like I think she's had a pre-lay shed whether like I won't say she'll definitely have a clutch but when you work with the animals for so long, you get a feeling and like behavioral changes are a big thing that I pick up on. Like she's never used the nest box before, but the day after she, what I thought was the ovulation, she was in the nest box. So I was just like, she had access to that for six months beforehand, never used the hide, never used the nest, like never went in there apart from maybe sticking her head in for about 10 seconds to sort of like scope it out and then just moved off. So that's mainly what I'm relying on is sort of like I see a behavioral change. I'm like, right, I compare that to my experiences from before and go, I think that was an ovulation. Like I'm not nowhere near experienced enough to say, yeah, definitely an ovulation. I'm definitely get a clutch. Like end of November could come and she may not lay eggs. And then I'll just be like, well, okay, I got this one wrong. Like I misread these signs. Now, I mean, some species, it looks like they swallowed a football and you're like, okay, yeah, that girl ovulated. Are scrubs mm-hmm. like that or is it a little bit harder to tell? From like from what I've seen now, and I think like when you, when you know what you're looking for, it's obvious. 
when you're new, when you're like completely new to scrub python breeding, like I sort of thought before follicle development, I thought maybe that had been the ovulation. In the scrubs where like the females had passed, I thought like, oh, had they ovulated? But like from the postmortem, I found like no, that was just that was just um, follicle building. So I was like, okay, well, I have I knew I hadn't seen an ovulation then. But then with the oxicals breeding, there was one night uh, where I went in there and the female was just cruising around and she just like there was just a certain part of her just like literally going along, just bulged, sort of like and sort of time and a half what she was usually and at that point i was like i think that's the ovulation so i like took pictures for the video wrote down the date wrote down the time and wrote down like what she was doing was she staying still was she cruising like sort of what behavior was she showing so that and then after i got the clutch i went back through sort of the timeline of what everybody had said and then and i was like right that was the ovulation there so i could like use that picture as reference for future so like the next time the nauta ovulated i was like okay i'm more confident in saying this is an ovulation and with mahogany now like i'm sort of like 90% confident of saying that was definitely a lot ovulation just not even the fact that she like she was big but when you're dealing with scrubs like they're curled up sometimes even they're just curled up normally you see scale separation and you're like oh okay like is is, is she gravitas like no okay but then just combining that with behavioral things of general restlessness like moving between basking and being cool every sort of like hour and a half just like constantly shifting position and just a general sort of restlessness like she didn't stop cruising around the cage while she was ovulating she sort of stayed basking for a little bit moved around went down cool then moved back up and then was just generally sort of like slowly moving around the whole enclosure so that's what i sort of go on i don't take snakes out to palpate it's just like for me it's what is, what is the behavior indicating is what helps me sort of say right i think that one is gravid right and do you think if you did i mean if you were taking it at a female out all the time to palpate <clears throat> them or i mean you think that would ruin the whole process or at I least hinder think, it? I don't, I, I'm not even sure if it would sort of hinder it. Cause I know a lot of like the way more experienced guys like uh, Dan Malaria and that like they pull females and palpate them all the time. And they've like still have had breeding success for me. It's just like similar to not having seen an ovulation before with palpating them. I don't like, I haven't had to learn a species. Like I haven't had a species that's easy to breed. That's just Dude. like, I can learn on, learn on this species. It's like, I'm starting I from, can't, I can't feel shit. People act like you can feel shit. I can't feel anything on any species that I've bred. I don't feel it. I don't know what you guys are talking about. They're like, Oh, it's a so string like, of pearls down there. I'm like, get the fuck out of here, dude. It feels like a snake. I don't know. So I would like, know. so, yeah, so for me, it's just like, I can't palpate, so, and from what I've seen, there's no real reason for me to palpate the way that I do the breedings of just, like, leaving the snakes to do their thing. So for me, it's just something extra that I don't need to do. For me, it's like, I'm not hugely, like, if a, if a python, if a scrub doesn't breed or a snake doesn't breed one year, it's not, like, a major thing. I'm not sort of, like, relying on getting multiple clutches. It's like, okay, I need to work out something better for that next year then to get this clutch. It's not, like, just money-focused of I need another clutch, I need another clutch. It's just, like, if I breed them, if and when it's going to happen, it'll happen. 
So I like with other species, I've had the thing of, I haven't put as much time into the, to the breeding aspect as the scrubs. So like, will I be able to do it? I like for the water pythons, I got lucky for the papau and carpets. I got lucky. I like, they were just like semi long-term cohabiting pairs no external manipulation they just did their own thing in the enclosures and i ended up with a clutch so for me that was just like those those were all pure luck like nothing i did to them would signal apart from just keeping them would signal that like i i was trying to breed them and oh man i had a question off that but i forgot but there's a good yeah, question there's a chat. question from the chat of uh, frank mm. tatis tatis no idea frank uh, wanted to know about your record keeping. He said, it seems like you take a lot of notes on behaviors. Are you consistent with that amount of record keeping? Uh, in general, like for me, I would know that like overall, I'm not as consistent as I would be on other species as I would be for the scrubs. And it's something that I'm like trying to address is to pay the same, have the same attention to detail to all the species and not just rely on rely on sort of like luck or anything um as far as record keeping goes as far as feeding apart from neonates i don't keep feeding records i just like i judge by eye of what the animal is looking like if i think okay they're a bit thinner i'll give them slightly more regular feeds but in general i'm sort of like i'm just going uh, as a semi i like i sort of call it like a semi-natural diet it isn't two or three big meals a year it's sort of like maybe six or eight for an adult scrub like six or eight meals a year is what i would average for them okay so kind so of more like just keep like them. observing yeah it's it's just mainly like observing and like a lot of it is done like just if i see something i'll make a post on facebook about it just like as a little note just like if i have my phone take a picture make a quick post and then i can go back through find that post and then like write that further down into the other notes i've taken and i can be like right well this fits in with this timeline of this happening there so so like, how, yeah as far as how has that as far as you as far as like your observations and adjustments that you've made to me it's just it's like for me the observation part of it really comes into its own when it's when it's breeding season like just seeing a female drastically change her behavior is for me is a bigger indicator than like the the time of year or like does she look big or whatever it's just like pay attention to the behavior of what the animal is doing like this animal hasn't been to a certain place in the cage at all she suddenly goes down into the nest. Why is this? It's like, why is she suddenly seeking someone that's a lot more secure and is darker and smaller than than before? So for me, like the observations do help, like taking a picture or a video, even if it's just on my phone and it's a quick one of something that I think is important. Like just, I see a behavior or something. I take a picture or video of it just for my own sort of like interest as much as sharing. Um, and I think for this, it just like it's definitely helped with uh, building enclosures where you're sort of like you're trying to like each enclosure we built, we've moved on from very basic sort of like more basic enclosures to now being more elaborate with like horizontal branches that cut or vertical branches which come out with horizontal branches to them as well. 
So it's sort of like the behavioral things like I know, okay, scrubs tend to like using this sort of perch configuration or they like this species seems to utilize shelves more. This one seems to like like sort of like branches with a Y in it that they can push up against. So it's just sort of like learning what the, seeing what the animals are telling you that they, that they sort of like want or they prefer and then just applying that to the other animals that you have and sort of like, right, well, I'll try this for more of them if that works. Now, bringing it back to kind of what we talked about before, kind of the making them feel secure and not messing with them too much. Um, how often do you change things around? Like, do you feel that when you change the decor around that that affects the animal? And is it ever in a negative way? And, you know, what could affect the animal in a negative way if you, you know, I don't know what you could do to do that, but... I mean, for me in general, if I have like, I wouldn't just like change an enclosure for the sake of it. Just like if, unless I'm changing it dramatically because of what I've seen the animal do, I'm not just going to change it for the sake of it. Like I'll often just add small things like cuttings from the, like Tradescantia from the bioactive vivs, just like throw them into odd cages as a bit of like enrichment or like I'll sometimes take a shed from a female and put it into a male's enclosure and just missed it slightly it's like it's just sort of like you can see like some of the scrub some of the scrubs and like especially some of the um the carpets and that like when you put in shed from another animal like within a couple of minutes they're down and their tongue flicking all the way along it's sort of like it's a thing of enrichment like they're going to encounter other snake sheds in the wild it's like something that may contribute like i know some people say put a male shed into a male, put another male shed into a male snake and it'll sort of like help him spur him on because he'll sort of be thinking, oh, there's another male I need to, I need to mate with the female so it will get him more into a breeding mode. Um, I haven't seen a particular sort of like increase in anything by doing this, but I think it's just, it's something that's very simple to do and it adds another layer to your keeping. It's something else like the snakes can, they can come, they're using their, they're sort of like using their brains. They're like finding out what this sense, this scent is, where did it come from, picking up information from it. So I think it's something that just like doesn't hurt, but I wouldn't ever just completely re like rearrange an enclosure that I know has worked before or is like the animal feels like if I'm happy with how that animal is behaving in that enclosure, I won't change it up unless I think something has changed for that animal. And do you introduce males to males for combating? I mean, I don't know if it's prevalent in scrubs, obviously in carpets, but in either of those, do you do that? No, we haven't done that. Uh, the main reason being is like when I was researching scrubs and I, um, I got the Keeping and Breeding Australian Pythons book. Um, and they said like noted with especially australian scrubs like a lot larger that males in combat can expose underlying musculature like they will bite and they will lacerate during during combat so it's something for me it's not worth the risk i haven't needed to do it so i mean using the shed is as good as anything if you're going to do anything like use a fresh sampler shed or just like get a shed and like mix it up and one of my friends who i got uh some Madagascan ground bows off like uh, he told me that trick um, and he sort of said like yeah often just like use he was like just just throw in a male shed like and so for scrubs and carpets I wouldn't 
I wouldn't like just put two males in to try and get them into breeding mode. I think it's too much of a risk on the animal to worry about, especially with scrubs. Like scrubs can turn and do so much damage so quickly. Like I've been bitten by them, I know what they can do. So inflicting, like risking that being inflicted on another animal is just not worth it wouldn't be even worth getting a clutch to it it's like if this animal get injured and then i get a clutch the clutch isn't worth that other animal possibly being injured for me it's just like no if i'm gonna do it it's gotta be the best for every everyone involved like for me and the reptiles yeah now but do you think that is there a spurring of like the male kind of competitiveness as far as putting the the shed in there will you do that before putting them with a female or i have i have particular situation i i have done that and i have put sort of like a mixture of male and female sheds in there so there's sort of a mixture of scents coming through um i can't pity i i know that the that the snakes will often go down and they will they know that something else is there they'll go down and they'll systematically move along where i've spread the shed in that enclosure and they'll move through and they'll sniff each different piece of it like they'll tongue flick each different piece of it as far as it being something that's the consistent i wouldn't be able to like as far as i can see it doesn't it doesn't seem to help but in my opinion it can't hurt so why not try it like why not do it it can't hurt you're not gonna no harm is gonna come of throwing a couple of bits of shed in there and spraying it down so that's sort of there are possible benefits you might as well do that so i wonder because people often say obviously don't cohabitate animals because they're gonna stress each other out which i mean our last few guests have been people who cohabitated animals so it's kind of funny but i mean do you think the stress is coming from the humans or do you think other because obviously you're exposing your snakes at least to their other snake scents so and they're scrubs who are going to be very sensitive so like i mean i don't think that like for as far as stress goes in cohabiting and like i've seen a lot of it recently like a lot of people getting berated online for cohabiting and interestingly i haven't really had any even though i've posted in places where people are generally completely anti-cohabbing i've only ever once i think had someone who was so mind just like had their mind set in stone about the horrors of cohabiting that are like even with the logical sort of like discussion you couldn't sort of change their mind or even get them to try and change their mind and I don't cohabit everything, and I don't cohabit, and, and like every cohabited pair is selected. It's like okay, for whatever reason, it being like for the throngs, I had the choice of having the female in the six by two by three and breeding her in that, so an eleven foot and a thirteen foot snake in a six by two by three, or or having them cohabit in a eight by two and a half by four foot viv. So I chose to go for the cohabiting route, but I pay close attention to them. So if the female looks like she is stressing out, if she's staying somewhere very cool and she isn't moving out of sort of a very dark corner, then I'll say, right, no, I can't cohabit with these. Like, I can't. They're not suitable. So it is very much knowing which animals you're going to do it with, paying attention to 
their behaviors once they're in there together and scrubs will often be a bit jumpy around one another initially in introductions but that goes from introductions from breeding or just simply putting us putting them into cohabbing they can be quite jumpy for the first sort of like day until they've sort of like gotten used to the fact there's another animal in there and in general they just seem to just like completely like relax and calm out they like one doesn't compete for basking points but if you're going to cohab you're going to have to think about okay like as you said i have multiple options for basking multiple options for staying cool so it is a case of just like think about how you're going to do it if you are going to cohab and people say oh you've got crossing of diseases if one gets sick the other one's going to get sick well like you're gonna run that risk when you breed anyway. If you put two animals that have been raised separately together, one of them could have a bacteria internally, which they can live with in the host animal. But if that bacteria gets into the the other pair, then it's not going to like that is going to cause an issue anyway. So even just by mating two separate animals, you you could run into this problem of one carrying a bacteria that isn't uh, isn't useful for or like isn't isn't uh, the other snake doesn't have a uh, immunity to and so you're going to still risk that animal getting sick no matter what you do um and feeding is just a case of you just have to be aware you take the precautions we have i don't think we've ever had one where there's been a feeding response by after or while we've been feeding like like even reintroducing we haven't had anything bite bite the other one like we'll often remove if it's a pair we'll remove the male because they seem less prone to stress we'll never remove a female the males you seem to have a lot more i mean people are removing them every couple of days during introductions i mean what's that going, the harm going to be of the stress level of removing it, it once every four to six or eight weeks for feeding just for two or three days in a large tub get let them digest back in spray the enclosure down it's working for me and i'd say like and i'm and i'm not saying like everybody should cohabit and it'll be some magical thing that everybody will suddenly be breeding all these rare pythons if they cohabit it's like if it works for you do it like don't necessarily listen to everybody saying oh how much is a bad idea like if you're confident that you know the animals and you're going to pay attention and you can provide an enclosure that's large enough it's not a space saving thing it's like if you can provide an enclosure large enough for those two snakes with enough options cohabit it's like cohabit if you want to just pay attention to what those animals are telling you i think that there's a fine line between what you just explained and people who would cohabitate in the enclosure that they would normally put just put one in. in that's the biggest difference i think that that's the main issue is like okay i could have gone for like the sarongs two six by two by threes but okay i i went for an eight by two and a half by four foot so it's like the enclosure is so much larger they have multiple options to bask it's not a thing of okay i've got a four by two by two i'm going to keep two pythons in that which one of them should have that enclosure like they should have that enclosure each now sorry i just tried to talk into the mic and my mic went out before no your mic didn't like, go out you turned well, it off no, no, and you forgot okay. to turn it back on turn my mic back on <laughs> <laughs> oh, so i don't know if they heard you but whatever 
Um, okay, so my question is, since Scrubs are such a your main focus, are you going to expand the other projects? You know, like with your waters and your carpets, are you going to continue to breed them? Or are you going to expand them? We're going to continue breeding them. Like we've we've kept like one of the water pythons as a whole back. Um, carpet pythons, like I'm not I'm not entirely sure if we're going to keep going. I mean, money isn't an issue. Like as for like, I don't care what I necessarily get for the animals, but you're looking at something like carpets, which are regularly produced, and they're demanding. So like, I know someone who I know has twenty pure bridal carpets for sale, and he's selling them at twenty sterling. So I don't know what that is. Like maybe what the fuck 15, is a sterling, dude? <laughs> I've never heard uh, of pounds, that. pounds, okay. British pounds. Uh, so I think that's like twenty. I think. That might be something around like fifteen dollars. I'm not sure. Wow. Like baby brettles, pure brettles for fifteen for fifteen oh, quid, and he insane. he can't he can't and he can't sell them. So there is a thing of like you have to think. Well, I'm gonna have this many babies of these now. For us, like we have the the guy who runs the shop that who like sort of helped me get started has said like any if you have surplus, they'll quite happily take them. Um, and they'll like he said they'll quite happily like take them at wholesale. So as far as like having the having offspring left over, I'm not too concerned. But you do have to think like why am I why am I breeding these? It's like the market's oversaturated. Does it need another twenty twenty thirty carpets? Does it need another twenty thirty retics? Do you need another twenty thirty ball pythons from a clutch to just get one? To get one animal that you hope to get out is like do you, overall does the hobby need these excess animals um but for stuff like the water pythons and the sort of the more obscure species that not many people would sort of like know about or see that often they definitely we want to keep up sort of like a broad a broad thing like we want to breed the um the cyanias the green cat-eyed snakes we want to breed the mangrove snakes we want to breed the uh gonyosoma jansenai so we don't just want to sort of be a, like a one-trick pony of this is all we do. It's sort of like we can breed. We hope to be able to breed sort of like multiple different species, multiple different genuses, um, and just sort of like because I, I think like even though each species is different, like you can take certain things from each species that you learn and apply them to others. Um, be it behavioral differences, you can still sort of transfer that over to to an animal. Like they all stay cool the same when they're follicle building they start to bask when they ovulate so like you can you can it does cross over for the species so yeah we do hope to we're going to carry on breeding sort of the more rare the more sort of like uncommonly seen stuff um just just for the fact that like we're not we're not just setting stone on scrubs we like having that um we like having that diversity about the collection like, it's something nice about being able to go work with colubrids when you want to go and work with colubrids and then work with pythons. Like, I love carpet pythons because they're just easier to work with slightly smaller versions of scrubs. <laughs> it's like, I can, go, I can go to the Marilia, I can take them out with my bare hands, I don't get bitten. I tried to do that with the scrubs, I know that I'm going to end up bandaging, bandaging half of my arm. Well, you also have Boega, which are kind of like little... 
or arboreal assassins also. So little arboreal assassins. <laughs> they're just like, like a slightly smaller versions of what you already have. So I mean, what's do you like or what kind of got you into the boyega? Or... Um, the mangroves, like they were just one of the sort of iconic species that you would see on nature documentaries, and we saw them at one show in the UK that like some vendor had. And they looked a bit ropey and i was just like a friend of mine at the time had actually had the adult pair we had now and uh i was saying like wait till she breeds them because they're like her snakes are stunning like just wait till she breeds them and she ended up selling and she offered them to us so that's where we sort of got that and then we got the male cyania with with the uh two mangroves as well and we actually bought the water pythons from the same from the same girl. Now, are you keeping those animals in a different room, a little bit cooler than your pythons, or how are you keeping them? Yeah, yeah, we keep we keep the boiger in a sort of in a different room, which does we which we can let get a little bit cooler um, than the python room. Um, so we basically we have the two mangroves in four by two by twos at the minute. Um, we plan on upgrading the female to a four by two by four purely for like for her to have and then keep the male in a four by two by two as he's slightly smaller, but the idea behind the four the bigger enclosure is to sort of like for when we try to breed them is like there's a lot more room, like especially with them being what they are, like there have been instances of cannibalism, it's well known like give them that little bit of extra space and try and cut down on that risk. So you're basically giving the male room to run away from the female? Yeah, if he needs to. <laughs> so, And uh, how have you gone introducing them? Have you had success? What have you seen so far? And how long have you had them? I'm not even sure how long you've had them. We've, we've had them for a similar time period, sort of about three years. And there, I think the female is now four years old. I think she is now four or five. Um, we tried breeding before because like when we first initially kept them, we were told keep them in small things. We had them in like two by two by threes I think it was that we were keeping them in um and then we decided like we upgraded them and they were only drop feeding uh we upgraded them into the four by two by twos and they both started strike feeding immediately in the larger enclosures they were way more active way more active at night um as far as we haven't had any success I mean I've tried doing introductions once or twice and it's the one thing that like comes back to uh I've put so much I know how much work I put into the into the scrubs and learning how to or finding out the information on breeding them but with the other species I know that I'm lacking behind in certain areas to to the point where I would want to be to do breeding and like hope to do a breeding properly so that's something I'm sort of working on addressing it's like having a rather than being well-versed in one species and then letting everything sort of be, if it happens for the others, is being a lot more, is having the same level of, like, dedication to the scrubs as I do to the other species as well. Um, so, yeah, we haven't, the female we found two, each time we moved her from the enclosure, when we moved her both times, like, as we were upgrading, we found two, like, clutches of about eight slugs eight infertile eggs um so we're hoping for this season that she's like she's ready she's a good six and a half seven foot long like she's a nice size snake so we're hoping that hoping that this season will have some success with them with the uh green cat eyes as well yeah um, 
I had some questions from the chat. I was going to ask, did you have another one? No. Okay, so our friend Brandon asked how it, how it was getting your water started. Getting the water python started for feeding? Yes. Um, Not too bad. I mean, most of them... They started off, like, the thing with baby liasses is, like, just with the water pythons, they're so angry that, like, whatever reproaches is just, I'm gonna just, like, continually biting at it, not biting it. Um, getting them started feeding, quail scenting was the biggest factor. Like, they did drop feed occasionally on unscented mouse fluffs as soon as I scented them with quail. They started just, like, stripe feeding them immediately. So whatever it was, the quail was definitely the way to go, or seemed to be the way to go for the liasses for us. And do you see something similar with the scrubs? From my experience with the scrubs, basically unscented, defrosted, they're fine with, like, the nautas started feeding well, the highlands did start feeding well, like, purely on unscented. I think there was about four of the, three or four of the nine needed to be started on chick-scented. Um, but in general, I found the carpets and the scrubs just like unscented mice. The key is is to make sure that you heat them up. Like you make sure that that hit, that they are hot. Don't just like pick them up straight off. Whatever you're de defrosting them in, like if you're just defrosting them on a tray, make sure you either like pick them up in a piece of tissue, and just like hold them in your hand, get them hot, so like they're actually something to aim for for them. And that seems to be the biggest thing. Like quite a lot of the neonates now will not strike as eags as eagerly if if, if the uh, food is just sort of like room temp. As soon as I heat it up another bit more, they're immediately just like bang. The feeding response is there. That heat signature seems to be a big key of getting them past that initial stage. Do you have a hard time finding quail and chicks? <laughs> no, well. We do now because the supplier from up north that we had is now shutting down. They're uh, they're stopping sending out stuff, so we've just like put in one last big order, which should see us through for the next sort of like six months to a year easily. Um, so we have to source somewhere else that is willing to either send them to us, and all failing that, we're going to have to be looking at sort of like setting up our own colonies for some stuff. But in general, like these guys were. These guys were brilliant, like quail, multi-mammoths, gerbils, hamsters, guinea pigs, rabbits, whatever you needed, like even adult quail or like sub-adult quail they could get. And it was just like, as you needed them, a bag of 50. And it was really easy just to get a whole load of different prey, prey items from them. So it was a big hit finding out that they were going out of business. That's yeah, I nice. say it's such a variety. But I don't think people realize, especially when they first get into snake keeping, that like one of the biggest factors is the availability of food. Yeah. Whether it's mm -hmm. diversity or just, just finding a small rat at a certain part of the year. <laughs> yeah, like I mean when you get to a certain certain like number of snakes, it's like buying a couple of dozen from the shop locally doesn't work anymore. You have to like just bulk buy um and it's one thing I think, like the um, the the variety of feeding is something that's overlooked by a lot of people. It's like they think if they feed something else, the snake's gonna get stuck on that. I haven't had this myself. I haven't had one snake where I like feed it hamsters, and it will only take hamsters after that. I've never had that myself, but I know it happens. I've just been lucky so far. 
Um, but I think there is defeating the variety is something that people overlook as something is like if it it like they say for for us a varied diet is the best like little bit of everything like same thing for snakes in my opinion like different different prey is going to have different mineral levels it's going to have different like macro and micronutrients in it so as far as i'm concerned that is another big part of keeping which i think is overlooked is this willingness to try different prey items to get like i've only ever had to assist feed uh one neonate that i've had so far because i've just been trying every mad scent that i can think of i mean like i was told tin tuna tin salmon like mackerel heads from like get a get a mackerel just like sent it with sent it sent the pinky with mackerel and these guys like i know one guy who uses uh like tadpoles or frog scenting to get some of his stuff onto food and it's just like if you if you can you've got to exhaust all of that option all of those options if you can get the prey before you decide to move on to assist feeding especially something like green trees or scrubs like they're very prone to stress it's not something that you want to do willingly is like start restraining it and like pushing the prey up to its mouth like if you can get them going naturally by using a variety of scents i think it's a better way to go i'm sorry totally different topic i just looked it up and it's 39 degrees there how are you not freezing right now <laughs> oh it's okay like it's uh it's a little bit cold but i've, I've, I've got I've, I've gotten used to it what i'd be shivering out there right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when, you, when, you, when you live here for 17 years you do get used to it i was thinking today like oh man this is the perfect weather and it's like probably the perfect it's like the same weather as you guys have there no, today now. was nice today it got up to 61 yeah but it like i went to the gym this morning it was like 50 degrees and i it was, was like nice oh, i want nice. this to be like this yeah but that's day. not 39 <laughs> sitting outside in a light jacket no, I know it's well, Irish no, people. This, this is, this, he's not this Irish, isn't, but a light jacket. This is this is a this is a dressing gown and a hoodie and a t-shirt underneath. So oh, it's not. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I do I do the layers. I do have layers. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I think as far as feeding goes, like we, especially because we have hognose snakes, which like would mm. probably not feed on rodents at all in the wild. Um, obviously, mm. they want to eat your toads and stuff like that, but we somehow tricked them into eating mice their whole life and uh same with we had a guy out with water snakes like a couple weeks ago and he actually always feeds hairless rats and stuff mm. like that to his animals because they can't digest the hair so it's like i mean at some point i mean obviously you're always trying to get them on the rodents but things like boyega obviously feed on lizards and stuff a lot especially in captivity like mm. is there merit to feeding it like what it's supposed to actually feed on I think there is. I mean, with the boiga, we have a sort of it's. We would feed them more regularly than we would the uh, the python species in general. But I am very aware of sort of like how much I feed them and keeping an eye to make sure that like, especially for the boiga, they're not losing that triangular shape. Like if if the female or the male starts in any way to look sort of rounded, I immediately like drop back on the food. Um, mainly for them, I seem to, like I feed day old day old quail, 
Um, I mean, it hasn't seemed to make them. I know people say quail have a higher, or day old chicks, sorry. I know people say it, like people uh, say the chicks have a higher fat content. It hasn't seemed to affect them. They do not sort of like look obese and like, um, it's one thing that you're sort of very aware of. I mean, we can't get sort of like, we do have frog's legs in that. And I'm sort of, the issue I have with feeding parts of prey is like feeding chicken wings or chicken necks. Like, okay, yes, it's variety, but you're literally just giving like the protein and the bone. You're just giving muscle and the bone. There's nothing else there, which is my one issue is just sort of feeding like just frog's legs to the to the boiger because apart from the fact if they do get stuck on them it's a pain to get them and to get them continually um but i think it's a case of with boiger i think like they're quite arboreal from like the images i've seen and i do think that birds would make up quite a large i would i would think like without having look at, looked into it a lot that birds are going to make up a reasonable part of their diet like they're up high they're up through the mangrove trees there's going to be nests they're going to take eggs like i know um danny stark offered uh one of his mangroves a sort of a chicken egg and it took it no problem just like left a chicken egg in the enclosure and just went ahead and ate it so i think there is more things to try that people sort of like need to be aware of like i've fed the water pythons i fed the water pythons pythons uh bait fish like just frozen fish that you get in a fishing shop and they seem to go mad for them i mean you're just like trim the fins off they do eat they do eat fish occasionally so it's just the like try try mixing it up with whatever you can think that the animal might be able to eat and see what works for you i may try fish with the water python like what kind of fish are we talking i can't think uh I can't think exactly what it is like you just we just went into sort of like the bait fish and we were sort of getting sort of uh i'm not sure if they were um what were they i can't think of it off the top of my head but it's just sort of any reasonable size sort of bait fish that anglers use and i just trimmed the fins off them so if they do eat it the wrong way the fins aren't like poking out into them Oh, so is okay. one of those like fish species with the needly, needly. I don't know if that's a word. Fins on it. So, yeah. yeah, sort of. Yeah, they're a bit, a bit sort of spiky, but nothing that's. I wouldn't think it. And it's like I always err on, err on the side of safety, like still just a little bit paranoid. Like I cut chicks and or I cut uh, claws and beaks off all the chicks and the yeah. quails. Yeah, it's just like because I've had a friend who had a false water cobra that was fed a. Uh, chick and the the beak ended up just like cutting cutting part of the internal and causing part of the internals of it and caused it to die so i'm just like just extra extra cautious with stuff like that wow i bet your house smells real great <laughs> <laughs> oh everything gets prepared outside okay so it's like right we'll, 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 we'll every, everything gets defrosted and prepared outside it's like right we'll cut we'll do all of that and then it's just in and feed everything as quickly as you can so your neighbors are walking by and see you just cutting beaks it off seems like it seems like you live in a pretty rural area do you even have neighbors or yeah we we, we have one neighbor Oh, <laughs> we, have, we have one. We we have one house next to us. That's like the funniest one. Was explaining to the uh, delivery driver like why we'd why we get so annoyed if he didn't turn up on that day. Like because they'd ring you and say 
look, I don't want to drive out to where you live because it's in the middle of the country. Can you come to like the town that's half an hour's drive away and pick up the stuff from there? Or like the phone signal isn't even that good, so you don't sometimes you don't get a phone get the phone call. So he's there and you're like, No, look, we told you if you get that package, like you have to deliver it to us. And he was like, was like, Well, what's in it then? It what, what's in there then? And he was like and we were like, Do you really want to know? He was like, Yeah, what what's in it? Like, it's like frozen frozen rats. Yeah. Like, why why do you need frozen rats? Oh, to feed like the collection of a hundred snakes that are in there. And he's just like Ah right, I was wondering what what you were doing with all these like fro things that said frozen food, and sort of like just completely goes like nothing out of the ordinary. It's like, oh, do you want to come and see them? No, no, you're fine, you're fine. I'm not. No, I don't need to get. Don't need to go and see them. Wow, we would never have that long of a conversation with a FedEx driver. You would have like cursed them out by that. Point. Yeah, those are people who do not have conversations with you. Yeah, everything, never. every everything's a little bit sort of everything's a lot slower in Ireland. It's, everything's just everything just moves a little bit slower like everybody's got the time to stop and have a chat especially in rural part in the rural part rural parts it's just like yeah we'll stop we'll have a chat like pull up on the road like single lane road we'll pull up two cars wind the window down have a conversation <laughs> oh there's someone pulled up behind us we'll carry on having the conversation oh for another like five minutes and then we'll move off it's just like everything is just like, and nobody beeps, no one's swearing, nothing. Everything's just a lot easier to live, to live here. It's a lot friendlier country. That doesn't sound bad. That's, yeah, but if my delivery driver is like, "Can you?" But my to delivery this driver town, better be on fucking time. I mean, it right? better get to like. No, I'm not going to drive to you. Your job is to deliver it to me. Like, are you crazy? I, the fact that he even like, yeah, we don't that stand for cracks. stuff like that. Yeah, no, no, no. We're very timely. No, we just we do, we just don't answer the phone anymore, so that they have to come up to the house. We're just like, no, nah, if, if we just pretend we haven't got the phone call, they'll come up to the house anyway. That's funny. Now, obviously, you have a collection of over a hundred animals. It seems like, mm -hmm. where do you plan on going with this? Like, is this a business? Also, you mentioned you're in school. Like, what are you in school for? You know, what's the well, goal of um... this? Well, current currently, I'm sort of I'm uh, currently I'm out of school. I'm unemployed and looking for work. I did a at first initially I did studied um, general science at Trinity in Dublin and did sort of two years general science, specialised in geology. Came out, decided photography was something that I wanted to try and work on and make a break. So at the minute, I'm trying to sort of like build up a build myself up as a as a photographer over here as well. So it's quite difficult as like it is everywhere. Everybody can go and buy a camera and like you're a you're a photographer and like things on Facebook of buy all these photographers professional filters and whatever he uses for two hundred and fifty dollars and your photos will look magic all of a sudden. So but like I've gone through and like gone to a proper photography course and like trying to trying to do it the old way, sort of like hard like grafting away. So hopefully that is somewhere I mean as far as the snake breeding concerned uh, snake breeding is concerned I'll never sort of, I don't think we'll ever be a point where we're a business, like a business, you're making money at it. And at the minute, like we, we, we make a good amount to sort of say like, right, well, that's like paid for all the frozen and all the hardware and all the like substrate and lights and stuff. But as far as making a profit at the minute, it's not going to happen. And even then, like I won't be really breeding females two years in a row unless it's like a certain species like the water pythons I think are documented having had 
like successful successive clutches over over like successive years like without a break so for species like that i may decide right i'll try her again this year but as far as the scrubs are concerned it's going to be a minimum of sort of like a year break between each clutch with them because i mean their incubation time naturally is so long and even if i take the eggs off them i still think it's better to give that female the time to recover like the it is a stressful stressful experience for them and i think it's important to sort of take a step back and say well why am i keeping these animals is it to make money is it for the animals themselves like why are you keeping is a question we all have to ask and yes money is a part of it especially when you're dealing with a large collection money does come in like the cost of feeding cost of electricity you need to sort of have some income back in but at the same time i don't think it should be solely concentrated on how much money i'm going to get out of this i mean ideally yeah i'd love to make it as sort of like a full-time job where i was able to breed snakes as my sole source of income i don't think it will happen i think i'll just sort of be a be sort of like a keen amateur of just like i'm i'm a key i'm an amateur breeder it's like i'm getting clutches fairly regularly but nothing you can sort of say i'll have 10 or 15 clutches every year it's all sort of at this point in time it's all very much feeling as we go along like okay we might get a clutch this one this one i think is ready to breed so we'll try her nothing is ever rushed like if a if there's a choice between is the female like is she just okay or leave her we'll always go leave her another year like give her that chance to mature like you're gonna get a better clutch out of a seven-year-old female that's only like nine foot whereas compared to a four-year-old female who's 15 foot because she's been fed far more you're probably going to get a better clutch out of the older smaller animal i think i think where a lot of us fall is like yeah you don't want to say that you do it for the money but you certainly want to produce enough because you have a giant rodent bill right (laughs) yeah like like it's You have money does come into it, but like I wouldn't exclude it. Like if if someone asks, like why do you keep them? Is it for like is it to make money? Is it to breed for the sake of breeding? It's just like it's just to get the opportunity to work with these animals. It's if I breed them, I breed them. If I don't, they're still just amazing to to have as pets and to like observe and admire. So that's sort of where my standpoint is on it. But when you get to a collection the size we have, like money does come into it. You sort of, you do have to look at, right, we need, you you can't just like, we're not, we're not rich. We're not well off. We don't have like a couple of hundred thousand sitting in the bank or whatever that we can just afford to keep on spending X hundred on rodents every couple of months. Like it is a thing of, well, we need to make sure that this is in at least some way, once the initial costs of, enclosure setups that it's somewhat even if it gets to a point where it's self-sustaining or almost self-sustaining i'd be happy with that point of just like an almost self-sustaining collection i get the joy of working with the animals and they pay for themselves if i make a profit or not i'm not really concerned about it it's not why i started keeping i didn't start keeping to make money i didn't start keeping to to sort of like be uh, be an online presence or whatever I kept I started keeping because I wanted to work with the animals. Yeah, I don't think anyone's breeding scrubs for money. 
It's for the challenge. He likes the challenge. And and mm. just the pure passion for an animal that doesn't like you. Can tear you. That's weird to say. Um, okay, we've totally kept you past your time, but we had one last question um, from the chat that I was interested in, too. Uh, Ryan asked, in Ireland, is there more excitement for alternative species and not the mainstream stuff, i.e. carpets, balls, corns, and blood pythons? No. There isn't. Um, there's a small handful of people, as I've said, like keeping, like there's a guy who has a really nice collection of sort of like carpets of uh, of Marilia, of green trees, of emeralds over here, who keeps very much off Facebook. Uh, there's a couple of guys, like there's one guy who works ex exclusively with Pituophis, and he has some fantastic animals. Like we, he, he recently bought three of the uh, Santa Cruz Island, the dwarf um, Pituophis from us uh, that we managed to breed last year. Um, he brought he bought a trio of those from us as well. In general, it is very much still sort of playing catch up to the rest of the world. Like when I was started keeping, there were a couple of like other lads around the same age as me, a little bit older, a little bit younger, getting into ball pythons and ball python morphs. They're not keeping anymore because they either got fed up, they lost a couple of animals and they took the hit and they sort of burnt out uh, or their interest changed. Um, but in general, I'm now seeing there's a small, there's a small bunch of like guys who are sort of like really good keepers, really keen, who are now getting to the point where they're just like, no, I'm going to work with these more obscure ones. I want to get scrubs. I want to get Timors. I want to get... Um, emeralds i want to get green trees sort of like go away from the mainstream but in general we're still very much stuck in the sort of like morph ball python beardy retic phase sort of over here but it is growing and i'm seeing I, i'm i'm like personally i mean i'm seeing a change i mean like i've if I took deposits on like clutches, I'd be able to like I can sell. I basically know that when I get a clutch down of scrubs or liasis or something like that, I basically know like that clutch is sold as soon as it's laid. Like as soon as it's laid, the people who want the animals are just like they're waiting for me to breed them and going like we we want to buy from you. We know their CB. We know how you keep them. And people are starting to sort of see, right, well, there's there's more advantages. There's like, there's something different. There's something to be said for keeping the different species. And I think it is slowly changing that people are moving away from the mainstream species to go into more uh, uncommonly kept species. And I know that I get like a lot of stick for saying rarer or more unusual or uncommon. I'm not like, okay, morphs aren't my thing. I don't hate them. That's usually just, a very snobby thing to say among some people. Some people take that as it is snobby. like some people. Some people take if you say more uncommon species as being snobby. It's like no, I love snakes for snakes. Like I have different tastes, and I don't particularly like morphs. Okay, some of them visually and like the work involved for getting some of the designer Marilias and the the absolutely like stellar record keeping that the guy these guys do for the like checking the lineage is like that's something i hope to emulate with scrubs is have like build a lineage of animals that like people can see this pairing was done to this pairing but do it not as a designer as a locality animal but still have that sort of that 
family tree, that heritage of people being able to say, right, well, that offspring was from this pairing or was from that pairing. So, like, it's not a fact that, like, I hate most, I just don't, they're not for me. Every, like, people who have most locality pythons aren't for them. Some people keep both. I mean, like, I've had, my first royal was a pastel. Maybe you can call me a hypocrite. <laughs> um, it's like, it's like, just just in general, I think, like, keep what you want to keep and, like, okay, I'm saying more uncommonly bred species or kept species, they are. Like, you post a picture of a water python, you'll get people asking, like, what species is this? Like, because they just haven't, in today's thing of, like, all the big names breeding the same five, six species, they don't get the opportunity to see, yeah, like, they people who are keeping. Yeah. Like, they don't get people to see they don't get the opportunity to see these species that people are keeping. And especially when a lot of people keeping the species that I do tend to keep very quiet and they tend to stay offline. So there's one thing I'm trying to do is sort of like highlight, you don't need to keep the same species. Like, okay, water, py water pythons, they may look like dull brown snakes, but I think they're one of the most beautiful pythons oh, out there. Gorgeous. Like just, uh, Wait, who the black says and the they're dull belly. Well, yeah, because people don't see them in the dull. flesh. Yeah. I think they're so iridescent and cool. And the yellow belly is such a defining like. Oh, someone ever called my water python dull? Well, it's, and I've had people over issues. and like you show them the olive and they're like, but it's like it has more of a ring to us because like we kind of know it's rare. No, and we but know I'm still kind of on the olive. <laughs> Thing. Compared to the water, I'm sorry. The water is so much prettier than the olive. The olive, I'm just like, Ew. okay. <laughs> it's a brown snake, brownish green snake. Well, do but do you have any it. interest in other liasses, or is it just water pythons for now? Uh, Dunai, uh, like the Duns, uh. <laughs> Duns is one one that I would go. I've been tempted with olives, but the thing is, was I mean, like olives and bolands and stuff like that i've been tempted with and like white lip pythons as well i've been tempted with and i've been offered and i've been to the point of i can get more i can get these but then what happens if another breeder female for the scrubs come up i'm not going to be able to get that and i just and it, 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 it all goes back to the thing of, like, I have found the one species where I know that, like, this is where I really want to make a mark, and I want to breed sort of the other species as much as I can as well. I can get good captive populations, but it's more a fact of, like, I know that if push came to shove, I'd still keep scrubs at the end of the day if everything else left. Like, I would still, I, c I couldn't see myself in the future without at least a pair of scrub pythons, just because, like, they just, whatever it is about them, everybody has the one species that just means something is completely, like, a cut above the rest of them for them. So, for me, it's scrubs, so I just know that, like, yeah, I could get olives, but that space, I could put a really sweet scrub python enclosure in there for breeding, and I'm just like, I'd prefer to do that, and like even just a case of getting to know more animals it's a case of like i know that what i'm doing it, it, it isn't like easy it isn't like to start off keeping and then six months be keeping scrubs and then a year and a half later that having bred scrubs 
is like, I know it's not an easy thing I want to do. And because I'm so focused on them, I feel that if I got other species, which I really, really like, I feel I'd be doing an injustice to those species because I know that I'd still be just like, well, no, like scrubs are the main thing I'm focusing on. Like keeping them would just be saying, look what I've got. Like I have a pair of these, whereas I much prefer to say, I have another scrub python which works into this breeding group a lot better rather than just going, I have every species of python or I have every species of liasis or whatever. So, but that's just, that's just down to the individual taste. Well, coming from a third party whose opinion doesn't mean anything, <laughs> uh, there's no one who is focusing on scrub pythons very intently and is producing them often. And then also, I mean, and you're very passionate about it. So like, just go deeper into that and be that guy. You might as well be that guy at this point because if you aren't breeding them, who else is? You aren't the guy. Who's when the guy? Indo We've, or Papua like, shuts down, then, I mean, you're the only one with them with breeding. I mean, obviously there's others, but, you know, you then need <clears> someone with breeding colonies of these animals if they're not imported anymore. It's like, yeah, like... I think with scrubs, and I mean, like we've we've got a whole, we've got like a really, for the most part, we've got a really good community of scrub python keepers where everybody sort of pulls together. For the most part, um, there's quite a lot of egos involved as well, and like I've been guilty of it as much as other people have, and I'll admit that. I can say, yeah, okay, I've gotten a little bit above myself there. I was speaking a little bit out of turn, but then also I think, as you've said before, like people keeping one species for. 20 years and like okay you're keeping one species and you're breeding that species for 20 years does this mean you have more experience than me than than i have who's been keeping for four years but i've been keeping 15 or 20 different species and i've been breeding multiple species it's like if we're looking at terms of of like overall who has the more experience i would argue like in that case i have the more experience over more species rather than just having concentrated on one species for most of my keeping career but for for scrubs we've got a good like it's it's a good community and people do work together for the most part and do pull together and i think that the problem is is some people there are people who want to get into scrubs and they either don't realize quite what they're getting into or simply don't have the opportunity to house a large number it's only like i'm under no illusions it's purely because i got into like the hobby with my father that I have been able to house this collection of scrubs as I currently do. If I wasn't in this position, I wouldn't be working with 90% of the animals, I'd say. Like, I know that I'm lucky in the position I am, so, like, I want to use that that piece of luck that's gone my way. I want to use that to the to the best extent and sort of say, right, if I can establish a good European captive population of scrubs and, like, that's my that's my job done like if i can say i've had i don't know eight or nine successive breedings and like have multiple bloodlines and multiple pairings so i'm not selling sibling pairs i'm selling unrelated or like half sibling pairs for me that is more important than just saying i've bred scrubs x amount of times or i've kept them for this many years or like for me it's more about the animals themselves rather than what repu what the animals what reputation the animals give you like it's my goal isn't to for people to say oh he's like 
the best scrub keeper or like uh, he he's bred scrubs more than anybody else. My goal is for people to say he helps set up captive scrubs as a as a sustainable population in Europe. It's not a thing of I don't want to be known as like oh uh, he's the scrub guy to go to. It's just like no, it's it's like there are other guys out there. I'm just lucky to be able to be in the position where I'm working with a lot of individual animals and a lot of different localities so i think other people giving my given my position other people would bless you um i think other people given my position would do and like given the breaks that i've had would do just as well if not better than i have but just the fact that i'm purely i was lucky to get into this and to sort of share that passion with my father who sort of like backed me up and so I was like, well, if you want to do this, like, you're going to put in the work, you're going to put in the research, you're going to help design, like, you're going to design the cages for them. It's not just going to be sort of like some half-hearted thing, like, it's going to be, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it properly. Yeah. And I mean, you act like that's not going all out and the extra mile and like you act like it's luck. But yeah, that is that's the whole thing of this reptile keeping. Like there's so many people who jump in or like put dip their toes in the water and then three years later they're out. But then there's people who, you know, if you're going to do it, like you go all in and you do the best you can in every respect. Mm -hmm. What? It's not there. <laughs> I mean, I even have more questions. That's a good <laughs> question. Because it's 9.30. Yeah, but that's a great way to end the show, I think. With Yeah, next time we'll talk about Carpondros. Carpondros? Carpet. Yeah. Ew, hybrids? Not with me, you're not talking about them yeah, with me. You're not. <laughs> oh, did someone ask? Oh, no. no well, I obviously you already that. got it. But I was going to... Well, my fault interview on it. Hybrids... <laughs> It's a contentious subject. If they if they can potentially occur or they do occur naturally in the wild, I'll say okay, fair enough with them. However, all pythons crossed with woma pythons, I'm just like <laughs> stop it. I'm just I, I'm I'm just like it just doesn't sit with me. And like everybody has their own uh, has their own opinions, and I'm not gonna say like, oh, I'm better because I don't think they should be kept pure. I just don't agree with it. It's like simple as they think it's a good idea. I think it's a bad idea. I just don't. I just don't see why you'd want to do it personally. But see, that's what I wanted to ask. That was such a great answer. Some, some some people do, and like, yeah, in the past, I have been overly vocal about like tub keep it like the the um connection between morph keeping and tub keeping like like keep keeping and breeding morphs and tubs and like minimum minimum effort for on the side of the keeper for enclosures apart from providing clean water but at, at this point like i've i've grown up matured a bit like that that sort of part of it is in the past it's not of interest to me of like getting into the politics of it it's like if you want to keep those you do you it's the same way i wouldn't expect someone to come up to me and say you should breed scrubs with green trees because they know i don't agree with it but in the same way i shouldn't be saying well you shouldn't breed hybrids because i don't agree with it that's just it's everybody's different if the world if everybody was the same in the world it would be boring and it like there wouldn't it'd be no fun at all so 
if you like the only thing i would say is and it's from what i've learned is do what you want to do and don't like listen to other people saying oh you shouldn't do this like oh you shouldn't do that if you want to do it fine i don't agree with it if you want to hybridize whatever snakes you want to if you really want to do it go ahead and do it i would say ask yourself why you're doing it like why would you cross why would you cross two species which would not occur naturally together ask yourself why are you doing it is it for the money is it for the reputation is it just because you're interested in what can happen and if it's because you're interested scientifically in what species can interbreed fine but just like make sure that if they are hybrids they are represented accurately as hybrids if you're going to be crossing a bolands male with a carpet female make sure that the people who are going to be buying those offspring know that the blood the bolands blood is or the carpet's blood is tainted it's not pure like with stuff like bolands and scrubs keeping pure bloodlines and keeping these things like well known and like full disclosure of what the animal you're selling is is important for stuff like that because there are people who do care about how like the gene pool remaining pure so it's like just make sure that if you're going to do it represent them as what they are don't try and pass them off as something they're not so like that's just my take on the matter i wouldn't agree with hybrids personally but i can see the interest in like how they can interbreed yeah and i think that's it's one thing i almost get more frustrated with animals that like subspecies to each other especially in carpets or even like a brettles to a coastal like because then you can mistake it for something else at least if you have a, exactly. a ball a ball woma thing fucking it's pretty that, obvious it's, it's clear that a... that doesn't shouldn't exist yeah. in nature yeah and like yeah i think the more i think and it's it's the same thing with the green tree pythons like why people are designer green tree pythons i understand i understand people who've been working like 10 20 years on designer green tree projects they're so far down the selective breeding line that they have a goal of where they want to be but i think the people who are crossing single locality animals should be asking why like why why am i crossing this locality animal am i hoping that out of all odds like because me doing this one simple cross locality without having put 10 years of selective breeding work into it i'm going to get some fantastic snake that's going to be completely different to any other green tree before chances are you're not unless you're exceptionally lucky right so like why why are you doing just a single cross like if the people have been working on them for multiple generations yes that is that is an art of itself of learn of like knowing which lines to read to create a certain desired trait that is an art in itself however pairing an arrow to a biac just for the sake of it i don't personally see the benefits of this like i wouldn't see the benefits of just simple crosses the same way i don't see the the benefits of crosses for scrub localities or for the subspecies of Morelia. I just don't see the point of why they should be crossed. Yeah, I I think with intent is like an important part because some people just throw them together because that's what they have, especially something like Mm. green trees. This female is ready to go. This one wasn't so fuck it. I'm just going to put this male locality with this female or something like that. 
But that's why I think patience, patience is something that is, that scrubs have taught me. You can't, they're not a quick game. They're not a plug and play species. You can stick together and breed. Like you have to pay attention. You have to work with them. And I think patience is something that a lot of people in the hobby are sort of lacking. Like I, I'd wait an extra year, even two years for a female to breed rather than risk breeding her too early or just like say, well, she's ready and this male from another locality is ready. So I'm just going to cross them just to breed them. It's like, well, I know that other male is going to be ready in a year or two. What harm does it do me to wait for a year? What harm, like what? What harm does it do me to wait for another two years? Sure, something might happen to the female, but even if something happens to the female or male, I would still feel much better about myself having said, well, I waited to do that pairing rather than just going, she's ready, I can do that cross and I can get money back in. It's like, I think the whole thing is you just have to look at yourself and why you are keeping, like ask yourself, why am I doing this pairing? Why am I keeping these animals? I think that's one thing that, and sort of like with social media, you can get lost in the sort of the storm of social media and becoming nowadays, you have to seem to be a personality. You have to seem to be in one click or another in the reptile keeping community. You can't really just like, it seems that you, that if you just go out and do your own thing, like you're not, you're not sort of part of the community. You're not part of this group. You're not part of that group. There seems to be a sort of like, taboo about being out on your own doing your own thing and i think that's something that needs to sort of change in the hobby they don't I think want like you to people... be too much like everyone else but also not too much on your own like it's like they want you know you want friends in the hobby they want you so to you be both but the <clears throat> hobby wants you to be both it wants you to be in the group but not too much in the group that you do the same thing as everyone else but like if you're too far away they're like you know like it's frustrating because they want you to, the hobby wants you to be both. Because we don't fit into like, we don't know any ball python people or like stuff like that. <laughs> and maybe that's like not a great thing. You know, maybe that's not a good reflection. Like we should be friends with all snake people, which I mean, we try our best and we've had ball python people on, but like we, we end up not falling in into world. a category anyway. <laughs> yeah. but you, 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 you gravitate to, to like Pete, like, like, like brings like like you gravitate to people who share the same either keeping values or like keeping ethics as you or the same ideas as you it's not a case of like yeah you like people should say oh you should be friends to everybody and like oh yeah accept everything that everybody says i mean like i've got into contention with people on groups because they've uh encouraged someone collecting a wild animal when the person doesn't know the common name or the species name or the basic care requirements and people like if you bring an ethical debate to that and say like well should you be collecting this if you don't know the basics about it and people then saying oh no like you've got to help them to help understand and like oh you've got to help them and like this isn't a place for ethical debates you've got to you've got to help these people no matter what just to satisfy a group of people that are following you i'm like no you've got to still maintain an ethical an ethical high ground like you've got to have a moral standard and an ethical standard where you go what is better helping someone learn how to care for an animal they've just picked up out of the wild or helping that person research that animal's needs before they go out and collect one or buy one and i think the latter is more important it's like screw if people like 
screw it if people like you or if they don't like you as long as you can say hand on heart i'm doing what's best for the animals then i don't think anybody has the has the opportunity to criticize you right Okay, for real life. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, he said it literally. Like, you probably have to pee, man. Times. Like we both peed during this whole thing, and you didn't. So. I didn't pee. That's what Lawrence did. You, oh, you went out to do something. <laughs> Blow my nose 17 times. <laughs> uh, okay, for real last question. It's been like a thing that you've been doing lately. Um, totally not snake or reptile related. But what is the weirdest food you've ever eaten? The weirdest food. <laughs> Does rock count being a geologist? I've like you have to you have to chew pieces of one of the ways of finding out the grade of the fineness of rock is actually like biting a piece of slate or what? piece of mudstone and seeing how fine the grade. Each other. I thought that's what you do. No, the the, the apparently apparently well we 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 caught enough people out with it is you just bite a piece of rock and you can go right well that's that's coarse grain or that's fine grain so probably rocks is probably the the one thing that I've the the one weirdest thing I've eaten. Wait, so do all geologists have like worn out teeth, teeth or something? From it breaking on a rock. You you do, you do it you do it once when you're told about it and then you don't do it again. <laughs> you realize you, you sort of you do it once and then you go yeah this isn't this isn't something i'm gonna continue doing like there's easier ways to i'm just gonna i'm just gonna like write down what i think it'll be but it is a way apparently of uh telling what uh grain size any uh a sandstone or a sedimentary rock is made of is you just bite it see how crunchy it feels in between your teeth science wow that was not what i was expecting at all someone in the chat this is this is this is this is this is what this is what people should expect with me like you think of an of an answer that you're gonna get expect something completely completely different well that's not a bad thing (laughs) okay um if anyone wants to get in contact with you lawrence how can they uh reach you uh facebook at lark pythons or um like the the profile i'm using now for purely reptile related things is just lawrence and then somalia kenshington um and they can like send a facebook request and just send me a message um i'm pretty pretty good at getting back to people and like i'm more than happy to talk about like from experience from where i've come from and what's worked for me but I will always say, like, what's worked for me may not work for anybody else. It's all a thing of you have to know your own animals and you know your own animals better than anybody I can give. We can give as much as anybody can give as much advice as you want, no matter how many years experience you have. But unless they're working with your animals, they can't say you have to be able to judge by your animals what's going on. So, but yeah, I'm happy to talk to anybody, like, if they want to ask questions about scrubs water pythons and a big question that has been coming up is am i exporting to the us the plans are there in the future and i know the people who i will be going through if i do so like if people are in the market for scrub pythons or water pythons hopefully within the next one to two years i'll be able to be sort of producing enough that making a shipment to the us would be possible so that's one thing i'd say like it may not be now, but soon it might it might be a reality for people in the states who sort of like want to get some of the some of the animals that I work with. 
That's awesome because that might be an integral part of keeping those animals in the hobby and getting a good group of captive-born animals in the U.S., which isn't currently available. You know, with mm. such a small amount of animals, I mean, it's nice to be able to distribute them, you know, across countries, across yeah. continents, all over the place. Mm. Which I, I'm, I'm about to get on another like yeah, subject. I know. Okay, go. Cut Say your mouth. Your stuff. Sorry, that's not <laughs> Cut my mouth. What that's not saying? what I'm. That's what. <laughs> Stop talking. That's really what I was oh, trying to say. Thanks. <laughs> if anyone... But yeah, I mean, as soon as as soon as uh, I know whether um, mahogany is laid or whatever, and I'm back back after sort of the new year, hopefully, sort of like after this breeding season, hopefully I'll have some news regarding Timors and other scrubs, and hopefully the Boiga. So, like, I have no problem coming back on, and then you can pick my brains as much as you want about about this breeding season. Yeah, because yes. we failed at the not talking about scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> any, any, anybody who's anybody who's spoken to me knows that like once 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 scrubs are mentioned, it's just a one track conversation of just like I'll pour out everything that I found or like I've I've learned. I'll just like be yep, yeah, this is this is what we're talking about for the next two hours. So we tried. <laughs> well, good. It's almost been three hours. This yeah, I know, now. and it's like two a.m. for you. I'm so sorry. That's all right. Um. What's next? You're though? supposed to say our yes, website. Yes, if anyone yeah. wants to reach us, obviously on YouTube, if you're listening to this right now, catch us on Instagram, Port City Pythons, website, portcitypythons.com, Facebook, Port City Pythons, email the portcitypythons at gmail.com. And that's pretty much it, and guys. That's it. Get, get all the plugs in. Yes. There you go. <laughs> uh, thank you, Lawrence, again for coming on, and I hope... No worries. And get warm. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll let, I'll let you guys go. So thanks for having thanks for having me on. Of course. Bye.